You're listening to the We Are Libertarians podcast network. Find all of our shows at wearelibertarians.com. You're listening to the We Are Libertarians network. Learn more at wearelibertarians.com. The Boss Hog of Liberty podcast is the latest hit on the We Are Libertarians network. Each week, Jeremiah Morrill and Dakota Davis explore life in Henry County, Indiana. It's a show about our circle of friends, public officials, and our experiences. 80% observation, life, humor, and 20% politics. Boss Hog of Liberty is the day-to-day happenings of Henry County, Indiana, which is just like your community. Add us on iTunes and sample us today. Dear Leader would want you to. Hey there, Liberty lovers. This is Mark Clare of the Lions of Liberty podcast, where we strive to bring you great conversations about the ideas of liberty three days a week, every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. Check us out at lionsofliberty.com. Hey guys, this is Roger Paxton, and if you're fed up with the government running every single aspect of your life, but you're not listening to the Lava Flow podcast yet, then what's wrong with you? Check us out at thelavaflow.com, or just go back to sucking up to the government. The Lava Flow Podcast, striking the root every single episode. Hey, Liberty Rockers, this is Johnny Rocket from the Johnny Rocket Launchpad. Each week, I strive to bring you the best guests in talk radio. The Johnny Rocket Launchpad delivers weekly interviews of noteworthy politicians, economists, and activists. The Johnny Rocket Launchpad is bringing the party to the Libertarian Party and launching ideas in your direction. Check it out at johnnyrocketlaunchpad.com or find us on iTunes. Each show is action-packed, explicit, and a lot of fun. So join me at johnnyrocketlaunchpad.com every week for the newest episode. Keep liberty alive and rock and roll. Welcome to We Are Libertarians. I'm your host, Chris Spangle. We bring you all of the irreverence modern politics deserves while putting people before political parties. We examine current events from a libertarian perspective with the goal of leaving you better informed. Please be sure to rate and review us on iTunes, like us on Facebook, and uh, remember that, Harry. Uh, James Neese is in third place. (laughs) We'll talk about that in a minute. Uh, this intro is shot to hell. Welcome to We Are Libertarians. Please be sure to visit the Patreon, become a donor, uh, not a donor, a subscriber. You get all kinds of bonus content, and, uh, you get to support the program that you learn so much from, hopefully. With me, as always, is Harry Price. Harry, how are you? I am going good. How are you? I'm great. So, Nice, Nice was in third place. Yes. Yes. Now, now He's th- in third place. There are, as we talked about, uh, it's election night here in Indiana. And uh, oh, let me turn that off. It's election night here in Indiana. And uh, we're not going to talk about Indiana elections. Uh, we may mention a little bit just because I think there's some uh, nationally relevant stuff happening in the race. But first and foremost, we are Libertarians contributor James Neese. Uh, phone called about 15,000 people, as he said on the show. And ran for uh, a seven-person runoff for a primary uh, Republican House seat here in Indiana, vacated by Todd Rakita, who's running in the Senate race. And there were three, in the minds of politicos, there were three people who were up top. It was Steve Braun, a guy who is a millionaire who's buying a, a House seat. And his brother, Mike Braun, is buying a Senate seat at the same time. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then there's Jim Baird, who's a state representative. And then there's a guy named Diego Morales, who is a, a, a 
quasi uh, House staffer and quasi assistant to Governor Mike Pence when he was a governor here, but uh, insider Politico type guy. James Neese is in third. Whooping him. Whooping. And I didn't see if Braun or Baird were even in that top three either. So we'll keep an eye on that. Watch the Indiana primary. Uh, we'll, we'll see how that turns out for James Neese. Yep. Uh, and it just goes to show you, if you work hard, as we said, he called like 15,000 people mm-hmm. uh, on the phone, and that can really make a difference. So if, you, if you're if you strategic about what races you're going to be in, um, I, I am surprised to see that Mike Braun... Oh, now James is not in third anymore. Uh, it's Baird, Braun, and Morales. Yeah, Jim Baird lost a leg and an arm in Vietnam. Nisa's nice now in sixth. Uh, so Jim Baird lost a, a leg and an arm in Vietnam, and his opponent, Steve Braun, sent out a mailer uh, on the gas tax increase that Baird voted for, and they used some like clip art photo or whatever mm-hmm. of, of a gas station sign mm-hmm. that said, cost a leg and an arm. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that probably just cost him the election. Like that's it's, You can't really do that. Yeah. Um, yeah, so St- Mike Braun is running away with it, 40% to 20 and 20. And Todd Rakita and Luke Messer, Luke Messer, former state executive director of the Republican Party, a current congressman, he was a state house rep. Uh, St- Todd Rakita was a secretary of state and then a congressman. And then Mike Braun is a guy who is an auto parts dealer who runs basically sweatshops and sells Mexican auto parts and has voted in Democratic primaries for 32 years, and the guy comes in and just drops $6 million in TV advertising, and all he says is, my two opponents are a congressman and I'm an outsider, and he's going to walk away with this this Senate seat. Well, he's not going to walk away with it. He's going to go up against Joe Donnelly, current senator who won over Richard Mordock, who in a debate had a flub and said, you know, uh, God intended rape to happen. I remember driving. I was coming back from a campaign event listening to our candidate, Andy Horning, in that debate, going, ooh, that's not going to be good. <laughs> and it, it, it lost Mordock the election. And uh, that's one of the many layups in the Senate that the Republicans – like how, how many Senate seats do they have to lose? Christine O'Donnell, I'm not a witch in Delaware, when Biden – Right. Became vice president. Mm-hmm. Uh, Todd Aiken, another rape comment. Uh, Sharon Ak- Sharon Atkinson. Oh, sh- Atkinson. Cheryl Cheryl Atkinson is the CBS reporter that got spied on by the Obama administration. But yeah, not. I'm I'm thinking there was one other, and then Richard Mordock, and this this Mike Braun guy is going to be another one of those candidates. And mm-hmm. Joe Donnelly here in Indiana is a Democrat, and he'll walk in on a layup. That should be a layup for the Republicans. Right, yeah. And the Republicans in West Virginia, I've got to find this ad because this candidate that's running in West Virginia, his ad is so incredibly racist and stupid. Uh, hold on. All right. So, so yeah, yeah. It, it was also, like, neat. It was weird to watch a debate uh, with um, Murdoch and Andrew Harding on stage because you could, like, you could slow down and you could watch that freeze frame. As you watch Joe Donna like, oh, I just won this. I won and, this. And Whoa. Andrew Horney going like, you've got to be kidding me. <laughs> yeah, I mean, think of all the majorities that the Republicans just have given up because they're just so hell-bent on 
their voters are really hellbent on losing these elections because, ah, I'm just going to vote for the outsider. Mike Braun has been a state legislator for like six years mm-hmm. as a Republican. I think some... Whoa, uh, Mike Braun? Mike Braun here. He was a state a Republican state legislator. He's not an outsider. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, so listen to this guy. His name is Don Blankenship in West Virginia. And this guy basically ran a coal mining company and there was a major accident. The working conditions in the coal mine were abysmal. And then there was an accident that killed like 29 people. And the Obama administration in the state ended up putting him in jail. And uh, he was charged with a misdemeanor after he pled it all down. But now he's running a campaign where he's basically saying, I was persecuted by Obama. All the, the people like Joe Manchin and Hillary Clinton put me in jail, which Hillary Clinton had nothing to do with it. And he's just running a bunch of ads. You know, he's a rich guy who's running TV ads. And here was his here's one campaign ad. And what I want you to know is that Mitch McConnell has an Asian wife because it does play a factor in this uh, commercial here. Hold on. I got to turn it. It'd be good if I turn on the actual uh, the, the TV here. Candidate for U.S. Senate. And I approve this message. Swamp Captain Mitch McConnell has created millions of jobs for China people while doing so. China people. <laughs> Let's go back. Let's do a replay, Harry. Connell has created millions of jobs for China people. Millions of jobs for China people. While doing so, Mitch has gotten rich. In fact, his China family has given him tens of millions of dollars. His China family, Harry. In fact, his China family has given him tens of millions of dollars. Mitch's swamp people are now running false negative ads against me. They are also childishly calling me despicable and mentally ill. The war to drain the swamp and create jobs for West Virginia people has begun. I will beat Joe Manchin and ditch cocaine Mitch for the sake of the kids. Has like two cute blonde nieces or granddaughters in each arm. How did that pass, QC? (laughs) If you buy advertising, you you get to put it on. And they have granted themselves special rules when it comes to political advertising. If you're a TV or radio station, you get first run. Which means they have to take your ad. Okay. And two, they get a discounted barrel bottom rate. Nice. So let's say you're charging sixty. Let's say you're charging a hundred dollars for a thirty second ad on your radio station. Well, they they you're gonna they're gonna pay twelve twelve dollars. <laughs> I mean, it's that much of a disparity because there's a rate that that Congress has given themselves. Can you imagine being that guy at the station that gets that? It was like, all right, now just squeeze that in, okay? I'm just gonna re-listen to this and get this. <laughs> oh, what <laughs> China people? <laughs> this is gonna be great. Let me call somebody. I, <laughs> Listen at this time. <laughs> yeah. So there's just a lot of mentally ill Republicans out there running for uh, Senate, and it's going to be another fun cycle. Uh, you know, this guy Don Blankenship threw Roy Moore under the bus. There was another layup that they lost. Yeah, um, and he's like, Do- Donald Trump basically came out and said, "Don't vote for this guy because you know, even though he says China people, and I'm cool with that." Mm-hmm. He didn't say that, yeah. uh, but uh, he was thinking it. <laughs> <laughs> he uh, he said, "Don't vote for Don Blankenship," and uh, he he came out and said, "Donald Trump has made mistakes like." supporting a pedophile in the uh, Alabama race. So, anyways, crazy, crazy times. Uh, I don't, I, there he is. Don, he's on, we got CNN on, on in the background. Oh, uh, you got to – I'll put this in the show notes so you can see the commercial. He just – you know, he, he looks like Wilford Brimley pre-diabetes. 
Are they just that wanting an outsider so bad? I don't know, man. Maybe, obviously, maybe I should just throw my hat in. I'm an outsider. I've never been. <laughs> Here's the thing. It, politics is the only job where you hire someone based on having no experience. Like if you if if you're uh, and if you are curious about the Indiana Senate race, by the way, I talked about this with Rob Kendall. Uh, Patreon people have it in their feed. It's also in the Raw Audio Politics podcast feed. Um, but the Abdul used to say there should be a pol- there is a political professional political class, and we should have professional politicians that get paid, and that should be their job. Because here in Indiana, we have a part time legislature, and I said that's ridiculous. He's like, in Illinois, we have a professional legislature, and I go, yeah, look, look at the results. You're broke. Mm-hmm. Because if they're there, then they're spending money and doing something for their phony baloney jobs. That's why Texas has so few taxes, because they, they meet like once every four years. Or I, I'm making that up, but it's it's a ridiculous amount of time between when they meet. Or in uh, New Hampshire, where they have 400 different people in their legislature, and they get paid peanuts. You, right. The best benefit you get is a your license plate. Right, yeah. <laughs> so, so but his his point was basically... Why would you hire a doctor with no experience? If you are looking to have someone represent you in Congress and represent your state or local interests, wouldn't you want someone who understands how to work and maneuver through the bureaucracy? Like Todd Rakita, for instance. Rakita was somebody that worked with uh, me at the Libertarian Party when he was Secretary of State. He always did his best to um, help put the Libertarian Party in, in on the same plane with Republicans and Democrats. He appointed me to a commission. I, I liked that about Rakita, you know, and that shows me that he's an even fair-minded person. And I, I talked to one Rakita voter today, and she's like, he represents the interest of his constituents. The other guy, Luke Messer, is not that way. He's just the embodiment of what I hate about politics. And then there's Braun, who I don't trust. So... So she's looking at it from a pragmatic point of view where their ideology is all the same. Who's going to represent me the best? Well, it's probably not Mike Braun because, as Abdul told me the other night, he's like, this guy, uh, his, he just kind of kept to himself when he was in the House. He didn't really do much. Okay, well, now we've got a guy going to the Senate who's just not going to do much. You know, and, and he's uh, – I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to tear down Washington. Okay, well, you didn't tear down Indianapolis, so. <laughs> yeah. yeah, and um, he's not going to be Donnelly. Right. No. No. The the Democratic Party is going to tear him down and go after and like let's see how much money he can really spend. Right. At that time, it's oh, it's just oh. that's the one thing that I think like Rob always uh, Rob Kendall always kept bringing up was like what's your plan to be Donnelly? That's when you okay. Now I don't want to get too into the weeds of like Indiana politics, but yeah, the one he just kept like what's your plan to be Donnelly? Because right. most of them that entire debate was I'm going to be a true leader for Trump. That's all they said. Yeah, and they, and the other two suck. Yeah, it was the bad part was all the stuff that they were saying was true about each other. Mm-hmm. But they tied themselves so closely to Trump that now there's no wiggle room. Like the the squishy middle doesn't want to vote for Trump. Uh, we've got a good candidate in Lucy Brenton for the Libertarian Party here. That was she was nominated this past weekend. So so at least we have a a, a person that we can vote for if we're we're libertarians in Indiana. But whoo. It's just getting it's getting bizarre how how the Republicans especially and libertarians fall into this too. It's like they fall for sloganeering. 
Now we'll talk a, a little bit more about this with Weld and Kokesh uh, because uh, Bill Weld, I actually met him this past weekend and heard him speak, and I pulled some clips from his speech and uh, talked for about 30 minutes with the media guy for Adam Kokesh's campaign, spent some time looking over Adam Kokesh's stuff, uh, put, put all of this in the podcast feed that we have called Raw Audio Politics, uh, and you can go and check that out. Any podcatcher, any any place that you subscribe to We Are Libertarians, just search for Raw Audio Politics, and you can get the entirety of that speech. I'll put it's basically like a feed when I want to listen to something. Like let's say I wanted to listen to the State of the Union address, I'll put that in that feed so I can listen to it. And I just assume that if I want to hear the original source material, there's other people that want to hear that source material too. And I've been right. Uh, we did the Gary Johnson for President feed, and that had thousands of downloads per per episode so so and we're going to keep doing that uh, especially with with like the libertarian party candidates they don't get a lot of attention mm-hmm. and so sometimes it's nice to go and listen to exactly what they're saying um so i've got some stuff from weld and kokesh and uh my breakdown with rob kendall and then also uh trump's speech about iran today so this is uh harry i want to give you a a, a recreation of what Donald Trump did today. Okay. Uh, we're going we're gonna to play a lot of audio clips today, uh, but I want to start with exactly what happened. This is probably the best description of what Trump did. Okay, guys. Uh, these eggs have given us a lot of trouble in the past. Uh, does anybody need anything off this guy, or can we bypass him? All right, that's France. Uh, I think Leroy needs something from this guy. Okay, here comes China. Oh, he he needs those devout shoulders. Doesn't isn't he a paladin? All right, see that's France coordinating. Yeah, but that'll help him heal better. He'll have more mana. That's the Russians. Christ. Here okay. Co- uh, well, what we'll do, I'll run in first. Uh, gather up all the eggs. So we can kind of just you know blast them all down with AOE. Um, I will use intimidating shout to kind of scatter them, so we don't have to fight a whole bunch of them at once. Here's the British. Uh, when my shout's done, uh, I'll need Anthony to come in and drop his shout too, uh, so we can keep them scattered and not have to fight too many. Um, when his is done, Bass, of course, will need to run in and do the same thing. Uh, we're going to need divine intervention on our mages. Uh, That's so they Germany. Can, uh, AE, uh, so we can, of course, get them down fast, because we're bringing all, right. all these guys. I Here mean, comes Donald we'll Trump. We'll be in trouble if we don't take them down quick. You guys ready? Uh, I think it's a pretty good plan. We should be able to pull it off this time. Uh, what do you think, Abdul? Can you give me a number crunch real quick? Abdul's uh, from Germany. Yeah, give me a sec. I'm coming up with 32.33, uh, repeating, of course, percentage of survival. Oh, that's a lot better than we usually do. Uh, All right, thumbs up. Ready, guys? Let's or- do this. Leroy Dragon! <laughs> oh, my God, he just ran in. Save him. Oh, gee, stick to the plane. Oh, gee, let's go, let's go. Let's go, let's go. Stick to the plane, Jones. Stick to the plane. Oh, gee, oh, fuck. Get in my intervention. Hurry up. Shout out. I can't move. Am I lagging? I can't move. What the, what the hell? I can't hear you. Oh my god. The eggs keep taking more responding. I don't think you can cast with that shit. Oh my god. God damn it, Donald. (laughs) (laughs) So. Uh, that's the di- diplomatic equivalent of Leroy Jenkins is what Donald Trump did today by uh, saying that he would know that he is breaking the agreement in the Iran nuclear deal 
which was the Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action, uh, the JCPOA. So I read uh, probably about the first quarter. I'm, I'm not through it uh, in preparation for this. Call a book called The Iran Wars, which I will link in the show notes. And it's a long book about the history of the Iran nuclear deal. And uh, this thing was very complicated, very strategic, much like Leroy Jenkins. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it was... It was carefully orchestrated over many, many, many years. Uh, and then Trump came in and shouted Leroy Jenkins <laughs> and blew it to hell. <laughs> so so let's start at the beginning. So if you go back to the history of the United States versus Iran, Iran was becoming a fairly prosperous country in the, in the 50s mm-hmm. because of oil. Well, we couldn't have that shit, and we needed to make sure that we controlled the oil. So the CIA... Uh, com- put a coup in place in the Iranian, I think it was in the 60s, the 60s, 70s, when the CIA actually overthrew the Iranian government and reinstituted the Shah of Iran, uh, who was the last king, essentially, of Persia. And this made a lot of people mad. Can you believe that? I can't can't believe they're upset. You just we-shamed me. Huh? You just we-shamed me. In the chat, oh, I saw you. <laughs> I saw you. What did we? What did, what did you do? You keep using the word "we" again. Like we couldn't have that. Like whoa, 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 whoa. Just we stuff. Well, we pay for the government that we have, whoa, so whoa. we are morally complicit in it. Whoa, whoa, whoa. <laughs> willfully give them anything. They take things. You, you know, keep using that "we" like we're ordering a pizza. <laughs> so, so they the take sh- pepperoni. Whoa, whoa. So the Shah of Iran is instituted. And uh, the Iranians get mad about this. Surprise, surprise! Like if if the great if the British came in and instituted a Canadian leader, or let's say they put Jefferson Davis back in charge of the United States, wouldn't we be a little ticked? Of course we would. Uh, we we somehow, especially those of us who came from the right and lived through the Iraq War debate, we somehow think that like oh well, we just we don't know our own history. And so when you learn the history of our adventurism in, in military interventions such as this, you go, that can't be true. Yeah, I got challenged when I shared a fact about the Iran-Iraq war that I'll share in a moment. I'm like, yeah, look it up. Well, that's your job to tell us. It's like, you, it's just the truth. I don't need to always source the truth. Uh, because when you start reading things like Chalmers Johnson's blowback, you start realizing, wow, okay, we did a lot of stuff that really led to the current misery. And this is one of them. So we institute the Shah of Iran, who basically becomes a dictator in that country, and he's friendly to the United States. And when he is in power, American companies and the American government help him set up a nuclear reactor and start developing nuclear weapons. The Americans gave nuclear power to the Iranians. What? <laughs> and uh and then when the Ayatollah Khomeini comes in and mm-hmm. overthrows the government and there's the Iranian revolution, then he gets control of the nuclear weapons. And then we're like, "Oh, no, that's not we don't want that. Now we've got to do something about this." So mm-hmm. that's the seeds of this crisis. Now, the Iranian revolution was important as we talked about during uh the uh, uh the episode uh on Syria. The the Wahhabists 
and 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 especially in Egypt under the Muslim Brotherhood who were studying under Qutb really saw in the 70s the Iranian revolution and realized that a caliphate which is what ISIS was trying to establish uh, basically a Muslim kingdom okay. uh, and they really saw that as a possibility and they because before that you had had princes and kings and you had uh, governments that were instituted by imperial powers like the British. You didn't have flat-out Muslim Sharia governments, okay? You had people like the, the Saudi family, the Saudi crown prince and his entire family. Once they got oil money, man, they, they weren't living by the uh, Quran. They were living by how much property can we buy in uh, – France and the south of France, <laughs> like how how big can we build our buildings and our homes and our palaces? Uh, so it, it, it you didn't have a lot. You had secular rulers, is what I'm trying to say. I couldn't think mm-hmm. of that word, so I just kept rambling instead. Um, and so it was really a moment where you had an, a, a religious ideology take over a country, and it was surprising that it was Iran because Iran is a fairly advanced society. It's much more advanced than many of its neighbors in the region. And in many ways, the history of America versus Iran doesn't make sense because we should have been partners with them in so many different ways. And we would have been had it not been for the overthrowing of their government by the CIA in the 60s. And so, like, take, for instance, the Northern Alliance in Afghanistan. Okay, Iran hated the Taliban. They hated Osama bin Laden and the Mujahideen. Mm -hmm. They actively funded and supported the Northern Alliance that helped us fight the Taliban in the early 2000s when we went to war there. And they should have been partners. Mm -hmm. And this book that I was reading, The Iran Wars, basically talked about how in 2003 they had shut down all their nuclear uh, capabilities and had sent a cable through some non- uh, official channels to the Bush administration and said, we'd like to talk peace. And the Bush administration ignored that and then declared them the axis of evil. Now, they were thinking, oh, and all of that stems from the the hostage crisis in the in the Carter administration right. and then, uh, come, then Reagan coming in and taking a hardline stance on them because of that. Um, so Iran is... Is a complicated country uh, because it is, it isn't it's Persian it's not Arab it has a middle class whereas you're just now starting to see a middle class in places like Saudi Arabia uh, over the last couple decades uh, Persia is is not an Arab country so it's not necessarily it's 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 a Middle Eastern country but it's not in the way that we might think about it when we start imagining the Middle East okay. Uh, that being said, it has become poorer and poorer over time because of American sanctions. We keep imposing sanctions on them. We have since the 70s, mm-hmm. and that has crippled their economy. So if you're a European bank or you're a European country that has some foot in the Americas, in, in the American uh, system, or you used U.S. dollars, for instance, you can be penalized for the uh, by the United States government for doing business with Iran under those sanctions. So the economy was really starting to go upside down, when and Obama recognized this, and instead of letting them go down during the Green Revolution, which was their Arab Spring, he gave them 
pallets of billions of dollars of cash. <laughs> okay, <laughs> so that's part of the reason that many Americans, especially conservatives, say this was a bad deal. Um, going back in our history, I, I mentioned this a little bit during the uh, Iran-Iraq War, which was incredibly bloody when Saddam Hussein fought Iran. Uh, we initially were on Saddam Hussein's side, and we would give him military intelligence as to where the troop movements of Iranian soldiers were, and then he would use chemical weapons on them. So we were responsible for chemical weapons attacks in Iraq. Iran didn't forget that. <laughs> but then later, uh, we f- switched sides, mm-hmm. and we started arming the Iranians. Now, the new, NR- the new president of the NRA, Oliver North was involved in something called the Iran-Contra scandal. Now, what was the Iran-Contra scandal? I'd like to play you a clip from American Dad to give you an explanation. Wait, who's Oliver North? What? I can't believe you kids don't know about the great patriot Ollie North. In the 80s, there was Cold War drama. We fought the commies inside Nicaragua. Our friends were the Contras. Freedom was their mantra, so we sent them lots of money for guns and landmines. But Congress stopped the Contra money flow, just cause they moved a teeny bit of blow. But then a hero came forth, his name was Oliver North. He and Reagan went around the sissy Congress. Holly North, Holly North. You see, North secretly sold missiles to a harmless country called Iran that would always be a grateful ally. Then he gave the profits to the Contras. Genius! But the sales were uncovered oh. by the press. <laughs> Reagan and North well, began to stress. Because what they did was technically high treason. But it was totally justified. North volunteered to take the blame to save Reagan from prison rape shame. The truth he did bury with his hot secretary, thanks to her shredder. He got off totally scot free. Holly North, Holly North, he's a soldier and a hero and a novelist. And now he's on Fox News. And he was elected NRA president this past weekend. Oh, so nice. he's now the new Charlton Heston. Yes. <laughs> so, well, at least he knows how to sell weapons. Yeah. So we had a very hostile hostile stance towards the Iranians after the revolution in the late 70s through the 80s until the Iran-Contra scandal. Then we got mad at them again. Through the 90s, it was kind of meh. And then after 9-11, it got hostile again uh, when George Bush declared them as part of the axis of evil. Now, why did he do that? Because Iran is the largest funder of terrorism in the world currently, and they always have had a large hand in funding terrorism, especially against the Israelis, especially funding the Palestinians. They fund Hezbollah and Hamas, uh, and... Uh, many conservatives are pro-Israel, which means anything that is pro... I mean, listen, here's the thing about it. If you're in Iran, one man's terrorist is another man's freedom fighter, right? So there's uh, been a competition between America and Iran for the last 20 years, especially, especially since 2003, Mm -hmm. for domination of the entire region. So, uh, Harry... 
can you please talk so I can get rid of this cat? <laughs> she's so annoying. Just want your be- attention. Just want she's, your love. she's an attention terrorist, and now she's got her asshole at the camera. It never fails. Get out of here. Get. Yeah, I know. So you're saying Contra's got more to do than my 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 NES video game. Yes, yes, <laughs> I, yes, I do. Uh, so, so we have been in a competition for control for uh, influence in the region. Now, the way that the U.S. government frames Iran as is an enemy, okay, and make no mistake, they call us the Great Satan. They are an enemy to the United States of America, but. I don't think, and correct me if I'm wrong, Harry, that they 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 really do have a reason for not liking the United States of Americans, uh, at least our government. Yeah, yeah, they, they've they've got some reason for it. They've got history. They've got some old bitter wounds that are and it doesn't help that uh, you know when Bush did come and um, get into power that he did bring in his cabinetry members from one his dad back in the CIA days right. and um, also people from the Reagan days uh, back into this. You know, back into the fold and start doing, you know, what they did back then in the 80s. Just now more ramped up now with a bigger budget. Right. So, you know, just like we wouldn't forget, you know, that we never forget the War of 1812 when uh, Canada attacked us. That's why we always diss them and keep them up north, you know, where it's cold. You know. Sorry, my cat is acting like a Canadian goose right now. <sighs> I, watched, way, I watched a... Uh, can a bunch of geese hold up a FedEx truck? So if you can get your stuff today. <laughs> I saw a bald eagle take a Canadian goose out. Yeah, that's what I tell people. Like, if you really, really hate them, go in with people, get some falcons, some eagles, just get a predator for them. It'll, it, it'll come down. Take a look what's uh, sitting on the bookshelves over there. See it? Um, I see a, um, a peace spreader. The, Spreads peace. Th- that, is, uh, that is a peace shot. Yep. Uh, it's a slingshot with little marbles uh, that I got at Meyer, and I'm getting good. My aim is really good. That's good. That's... I got a headshot the other day. Nice. And listen, here's the thing about a slingshot, okay? I it I, I live right next to uh, some water, and so I have a lot of geese around, and I don't want to kill any. I just want to scare them. And <laughs> so I, when I hit a goose... Which he'd never really do. It bounces right off of them. Which it, it really wouldn't do because he, he would doesn't, know that. It doesn't even phase them. They're just monsters. They're awful. Oh yeah, yeah. That's they. They are monsters. They're full of bread and disease. Yes, and they're disgusting. They're and, vermin. Sky vermin. Yeah, they're sky vermin, and you know it. It's the main reason why. Everyone needs to go in. If you live by water, get an owl, get a hawk, get an eagle, wolf, you know, <laughs> neighborhood pit bull. Don't feed them. Just keep pointing them at the geese. He'll, he'll get the point. So uh, back to Iran. They are major funders of terrorism. Uh, they are funding Assad in Syria, for instance. We are on the opposite side of them in, uh, well, we, the United States government is on the opposite side of them in Syria. Now, Obama, when he got into office, wanted to change his stance toward Iran. His his deal was, I wanted to talk to the to I want to wind down the wars and I want to build relationships with uh, the enemies of George Bush. And almost as soon as he got into office in 2009, he started having clandestine conversations uh, with the Iranians, sending letters to uh, the Ayatollah Khomeini. Because in Iran, the government structure is 
basically the Ayatollah Khomeini, the religious leader, is at the very top. And then the president of Iran is a figurehead. And everything is decided by the, uh, the Ayatollah. And so he started sending notes to the Ayatollah. And uh, we still have some communication uh, through the Swiss ambassador, a Swiss envoy that lives in Tehran. Uh, and he started having conversations way back in 2009. And they really ramped up uh, shortly, just just essentially as John Kerry came on as Secretary of State in late 2014, 2015, I think it was. And that's really when the negotiations started taking place. Their foreign minister is was basically educated in America. His children speak American, basically. They have mm-hmm. perfectly fluent English. They're American citizens. They were born in New York. And their foreign minister that you'll see on TV a lot is uh, has basically been on the diplomatic circle since the 90s and living in New York and is very well known amongst the... Uh, the Andrea uh, Mitchells and the mm-hmm. the uh, all the the Walter Cronkite crowd, the you know the intellectual elites, yeah, uh, especially in the news business, he's kind of a, an attention hound, and so so you'll see him a lot of times uh, with John Kerry, and uh, they started putting together a deal to curb their growth of nuclear weapons. Now, why don't why doesn't the United States and and the world want Iran to have nuclear weapons? Because they are such a huge funder of terrorism. Uh, they are the only country on Earth that has an official declaration to end another country on Earth, i.e. Israel. Uh, the other aspect is Israel. Israel and their allies donate a tremendous amount of money to American politicians. You'll, you'll hear, if you go too far down the rabbit hole, you'll end up seeing that it's a Zionist conspiracy and APAC, A-I-P-A-C, uh, basically is uh, buying the politicians and controlling our politicians through a giant uh, Zionist scheme that would be... The, I'll get to Cynthia McKinney later and Adam Kokesh. But uh, <laughs> so the Israeli lobby really does funnel a lot of money, and that's why our government has a very pro-Israel stance. Uh, Israel, for its part, is bombing the crap out of Iran in uh, Syria at the moment, and things are really starting to heat, heat up. There really could be a a strike or a, a a breakout of hostilities that we wouldn't be good <laughs> if Israel and Iran started actually duking it out. Um, but what's happened since the Arab Spring is a realignment of the Middle East, and what you have is a le- the. <laughs> can, can you like kick her? She's it's, now rubbing her ca- face ca- on the camera. Your camera, kitty. Yeah, the the camera is being moved because the cat is scratching her head on the camera. So, Israel and Iran going to war could be a significant concern. Uh, so, Obama took a very not not a pro not a pro Iranian stance. But he, much to the dismay of this new alliance that's being formed in uh, the Middle East, started working with the Iranians, who are the enemy of our friends in the Middle East. Israel, Egypt, Saudi Arabia, and Jordan, and and to Turkey as well. And so they began 
really putting pressure, especially Netanyahu. You you remember Netanyahu, Netanyahu, excuse me, always, uh, there was a frosty relationship between those two. And Iran was at the centrality of it. It's why when the Green Revolution popped up and there was a chance for the regime in Iran to topple, Obama did nothing. Uh, it's it's why he laid down and didn't enforce the red line in Syria. It was because of Iran, because they were supporting Assad, and he didn't want to go all in opposing Assad because he didn't want to upset the relationship with Russia and with Iran because he wanted this grand achievement of the Iranian nuclear deal. And so when you hear conservatives criticize Barack Obama's do-nothing foreign policy, this is specifically what they're talking about, that Barack Obama was a spectator to a lot of what happened, and that, that led to the rise of ISIS, which was funded in part by, uh, directly or indirectly, some people think, uh, by Iran. And it, it is, uh, it's why he gets the blame for the rise of ISIS is because he wasn't militaristic enough, which, <laughs> as we talked about with Syria— I consider him to be constitutional. Yeah. <laughs> by not getting involved, not doing not, not doing anything and asking Congress not to do anything essentially because it's not our business. But that is why he is considered quote unquote weak on foreign policy by hawks on the conservative side. So I always consider Hillary Clinton the mother of ISIS, but Really? <laughs> why? Why is that? <laughs> I don't know. It's um, there's a lot of shady. She had a lot of shady dealings back then, selling weapons in and out of different places, depots, if you would. Um, so yeah, 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 yeah. She's the mother of vices. Obama's do nothing policy. It, it's yeah. I always hate that. Like it's a do nothing policy. It's like it's sticking out of it, not putting boots on the ground, not wasting American lives. Now and that, but it's. I, I was mostly upset about the whole do do nothing policy because it wasn't a true do nothing policy. Sure. He was doing things, just not in this one area, right. to try to get that deal going, yeah. which kind of frustrated so many other people because if they were hawks, they were like, "Well, you know, why aren't you going on?" Because you know, it's that more of a technically five D chess move of Obama, right? So along comes the Iranian deal, and uh, I'm instead of doing a long, complicated explanation. Uh, I'll give you some analysis on the other side, but I want to play this from the Wall Street Journal, which is a, just a real short explanation of the Iranian nuclear deal. Iran has reached a historic agreement with major world powers over its nuclear program. But what is Iran giving up, and how does it benefit in the long run? The 109-page document boils down to five main areas. Number one, Iran's uranium stockpile. Uranium is the key ingredient necessary in order to operate a nuclear program. The deal requires Iran to give up 97% of its enriched uranium, taking its stockpile from 10,000 kilograms down to just 300 kilograms. That's much less than what's needed to fuel one nuclear weapon, although Iran maintains the capacity to increase the stockpile quickly. Number 2. Uranium Enrichment Uranium comes in different levels of enrichment. A purity of 90% is what's needed to make a weapon. Per the deal, Iran can still produce a modest amount of uranium enriched at low levels, just 3.67%. And if Iran abides by the deal, enrichment is limited in this way for 15 years. Number 3. Reduction of Centrifuges 
Centrifuges are the machines used to enrich uranium. Iran has to give up two-thirds of its centrifuges. Some 19,000 used for enrichment need to be reduced to about 5,000. Iran can also have 1,000 more for research and development. So what this means is, if Iran abides by the deal, for the next decade, it will take Iran at least 12 months to produce enough fuel for a nuclear weapon. And to make sure it doesn't cheat, there will be number four, inspections. UN inspectors will be allowed to monitor nuclear and other sites, including military ones, but Iran can challenge requests for access. The inspectors need to provide a basis for concern about undeclared nuclear activity. Any Iranian challenge could delay inspections for up to 24 days. Critics say that could be enough time for Tehran to remove evidence it was carrying out banned activities. So what does Iran get for accepting all of this? Number 5. Sanctions Relief The U.S., the European Union and the United Nations will relieve many energy, economic and financial sanctions against Iran that have been crippling the country's economy. Sanctions will likely lift early next year if Iran complies with the principal requirements in the deal. This is great news for Iran's 82 million people, as it's expected to massively boost the economy, increase trade, and bring new investment into the country. So what's everyone else saying? The Obama administration and many European allies see the agreement as a major victory for diplomacy between Iran and the West. This moment has been a long time coming. Every pathway to a nuclear weapon is cut off. But the deal has angered some critics in Republican-led Congress and some parts of the Middle East, including Israel and Saudi Arabia. What a stunning, historic mistake. They say the deal lifts all economic pressure on Iran and worry that this windfall will increase Tehran's funding of organizations like Hezbollah in Lebanon and the Assad regime in Syria. They also say the deal only curbs Iran's nuclear program for 10 to 15 years, allowing Iran to move back to the brink of nuclear weapon status without paying any price. And uh, some of you may remember the pallets of cash <laughs> that we had basically repaid them for all of the monies lost due to sanctions. And, and in that, you hear why libertarians and non-interventionists consider sanctions to be an act of war, because you're using your influence to essentially force other nations not to trade with a country, and it destroys mm -hmm. the life of its people. The people at the top that you're trying to, to bully into doing something, force into doing something, their life doesn't change. They're, they, they have uh, tougher restrictions on how to maneuver, but their life doesn't change. It's the people yeah. at the bottom, and it erodes the middle class, and it hurts the poor, and that's why libertarians often don't like sanctions. But it is a preferred tool to the use of war-making powers in general because, for instance, in North Korea, Donald Trump, say, Donald Trump talking tough on Twitter, in my opinion— is part of the reason that Kim came to the table because he realized there isn't going to be a reduction in, in any of these sanctions that they've got on us at the UN, which is strangling our economy. My only option is to start negotiating with them. Now, critics to the Iranian deal. Now, what has happened, essentially? The, the lessening of those sanctions didn't really help the economy in Iran. There was an uprising, uh, just a two, three months ago in Iran, where basically clerics are stealing from local populations and, and there was a nationwide protest and some violence outbreaks. 
over the theft because the country is still very poor. They have not seen the benefits of the reduction in sanctions that they would have liked. Uh, but they are, according to Rex Tillerson and H.R. McMaster, two people who no longer work at the Trump administration, and Secretary of Defense um, J- James Mattis, Mad Dog Mattis, all three of them agree that uh, Iran has abided by the sanctions, as does the IAEA, which has gone in and inspected. They all say that Iran was abiding by the terms of the deal. John Bolton and uh, mm-hmm. and Steve and uh, Pompeo, Mike Pompeo, the new Secretary of State, do not agree that they have been abiding by this. Part of the calculation that I think went into today's move of declaring that we were leaving this deal is that Pompeo and Bolton are probably whispering in his ear, basically saying, if you leave this deal and we reimpose sanctions, it will cripple their economy further, it will ignite more protests, and you will overthrow the regime. So that's, I think, part of what they're they're trying to spark an internal revolution. Mm. And I bet the former CIA director, Mike Pompeo, who's now at Secretary of State, I wonder if maybe they could help with a coup. Yeah, like a coup by a different term or a different right. way they're going to get this coup off. Yeah. <laughs> which is like yeah, which is crazy because like uh like the when they keep talking about like the I always hate when they talk about like nuclear power. That's why I like having Reinhold about that, but the the process when they cover like we're going to reduce like the centrifuges and stuff like that and the percentage rate but the thing is like it's so close for what they're going to do to nuclear power and if you're saying that they have been uh, you know buying by the rules like that then they are clearly mostly using most of their enrichment is for nuclear power not right. for making weapons right well so here's let's jump into this Vox article because Vox has done a really good job of covering it obviously a left leaning site but their explainers are always really informative. Yeah, and you say like their their economy is very poor, so like they're going for cheap cheap power, which is nuclear. So mm-hmm. yeah, good. So uh, this is six questions about the Iran deal you were too embarrassed to ask. Uh, published today, which is a really really good title. Um, so th- the countries that I mentioned earlier: the U.S., the U.K., France, Russia, China, Germany, and the EU all agreed to lift crippling sanctions. Uh, conditioned that key nuclear facilities were inspected by the International Atomic Energy Agency. Uh, some of those steps, 200, Iran at the time had 20,000 centrifuges, uh, but they can't use more than 5,000 of them, and they had to ship some of those out. Uh, they gave up 90%, 97% of its enriched uranium and kept only 300 kilograms of its 10,000 kilogram stockpile. That's about 3.67%. Again, 90% to make a bomb. Uh, they would destroy or export the core of the plutonium plant at Eric and replace it with a new core that cannot produce weapons-grade plutonium. Before the deal, Iran could likely make a nuclear bomb with two or three months if it decided to. But after the accord, it would take Iran about a year to make that weapon. So they weren't completely taking their ability off the table to make a nuclear bomb if they wanted. They were just putting in a giant speed bump. But that's – I always hate that because it's like when they say, like, well, we're going to take their ability to make the bomb, it's like, yeah, but they're just doing nuclear power. That's all they're doing. All right. So hold that thought. Okay. All right. Um, 
the restrictions on Iran's centrifuges disappear after about 10 years, uh, which is about eight years from now. Uh, and the limits on uranium enrichment go away five years after that. So some critics, including Trump, could, it could go back on the nuclear path in the 2020s. Uh, inspectors would still, according to the deal, have access to all of their facilities. Uh, officially, Iran says it never tried to make a nuclear weapon. We never wanted to produce a bomb, the foreign minister Zarif said, the guy that I was talking about earlier, Javad Zarif. Uh, now, he said that on April 22nd. Then just a week later, Benjamin Netanyahu's primetime special presented evidence from thousands of Iranian documents in the intelligence coup that basically said they were building a nuclear weapon. So the entire premise, on uh, the Iranians maintained the entire time that they were just doing it for nuclear power, but those documents stolen by the Mossad, the CIA of, of Israel, proved that they were trying to build a nuclear weapon. So we're supposed to believe the country who won't give a correct answer whether or not they have nuclear weapons, or yes or no, about another country who is trying to build nuclear weapons, yes uh, or no? Israel has nuclear weapons. They haven't confirmed that. Uh, well, they have nuclear weapons. They've, we gave it to them. They haven't confirmed that. But... <laughs> Uh, trust me, Israel has the ability to thanks to oh, yeah. thanks oh, yeah. to Daddy Daddy Reagan, they have the ability to kill anybody they want. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. Well, the, the thing is that the jokes always has they have one bomb and it's pointed straight down. <laughs> they leave Israel. Everyone's leaving Israel, <laughs> right? Uh, but Tehran may want a nuclear weapon to counterbalance what Israel has or to use offensively on it because we all know, as we've talked about with North Korea, it, it is an equalizer. And that is one of the the crazy questions that I have not answered yet for myself in all of this. Uh, the nuclear age is playing with catastrophe. One triggering of this, Harry, could go horribly wrong and end large swaths of humanity and make it lands inhabitable for generations to come. But the presence of nuclear weapons has really slowed down like warfare still exists and we're still going to war but it's not world wars you know the nuclear age has it really makes people think twice before getting into these skirmishes is it the nuclear age or the rise of capitalism though that's a good point um at the same time well you know that's what um because as you see World War One, World War Two. That was a throwing away of a lot of the bad old ideas of the past. Right. The uh, the um, uh, the monarchs, the um, commun- communism, the and socialism, socialism. As we bleed that crap off, those awful ideas, and showing these ideas of free trade and lifting people out so they can own themselves and own and own the fruits of their labor. Right. That has to me that shows more peace than bombs and blowing people up because the only people that are interested in gigantic nuclear bombs are states governments versus other state governments sure because uh, a company is like wow we can make a massive bomb with this or we can use this thing to power cities for very cheap and you know be able to become a billion dollar industry right fair enough good answer thank you uh some more to chew on uh so obama felt that the best way to to stop an arms race. He basically said on NPR in 2015, uh, three months before the deal was signed, my goal when I came into office was to make sure that Iran did not get a nuclear weapon and thereby trigger a nuclear arms race in the most volatile part of the world. There are really only two alternatives here. Either Iran gets a nuclear weapon and is it is resolved diplomatically through negotiation, 
uh, wait, excuse me. Either Iran getting a nuclear weapon is resolved diplomatically through negotiation, uh, or it is resolved through force, through war. Those are the only options. Are they? I don't know. Um, so he put this deal together to get rid of it. Um, so a war with Iran could be nasty. Uh, Zach Bocamp Bo uh, says... To destroy Iran's air defenses, including fighters and surface-to-air missiles, in order to ensure the bombs hit their targets and to prevent Iran from doing serious damage in response, the U.S. would need to hit multiple Iranian targets, including nuclear and centrifuge production capabilities. Experts doubt that airstrikes alone could end Iran's nuclear program, and it gets worse. Experts at the Wilson Center one of the most hawkish things, tanks. Mm-hmm. After reviewing military studies on the issues, hawkish, more the globalist. It's founded by Woodrow Wilson. It's the most globalist of them all. Um, after reviewing military studies on the issue, concluded that even if the U.S. military carried out strikes to near perfection, the best-case scenario would still only be a four-year delay. Uh, so that's not good. So there really isn't much of a military option in 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 terms of delaying their nuclear weapons, um, Trump, for his part, wants to leave the deal for three reasons. Uh, first, he says that Iran is violating the spirit of the deal because it continues to work against U.S. interests in the Middle East. Uh, Tehran still tests ballistic missiles, which is allowed. The delivery system of a ballistic missile was not included in the in in, in any of this because. You know, Zarif is saying to Kerry, like, well, if we can't test ICBMs, you can't test ICBMs. And Kerry's like, well, we're not doing that. So what right does one country have to say to another, you don't have the ability to have ICBMs? I mean, what right do what right does the United States have to tell anybody they can't have nuclear weapons, first and foremost, too? But that's beside the point. Uh, so ICBMs and the delivery method were never a part of this. It was always just... The nuclear warhead, essentially. Right. Yeah. That was part of the deal. Second, Trump doesn't like the restrictions on the nuclear program, and he uh, basically is worried that in 15 years they're just going to go right back to their behavior. Um, finally, he thinks he can make a better deal, and he wants to. here's how he wants to do it. This is according to Vox. Curb Iran's missile tests allow more inspectors of Iranian nuclear facilities, and remove the time limits on uranium and centrifuge restrictions. The U.S. is working with Europeans on Trump's proposed changes, but they have yet to reach an agreement. So I don't know that leaving the deal is necessarily going to help him get any further in any of those goals, which all sound admirable, but Mm -hmm. leaving the deal and leaving the conversation and taking your ball and going home doesn't necessarily... You're, what he's essentially doing is he's provoking the Iranians, which is not the way to, to negotiate. But I would have said the same thing about the North Koreans, and yeah. here we are. <laughs> so <laughs> what if he turns out to be the greatest peacemaker in history? Uh, Greg, <laughs> Greg Lins will be vindicated. Uh, <laughs> well, yeah, because you can see, like, you know... what. What better deal could that be? Yeah, to be honestly, that's the only thing you could really have done for a better deal is put a McDonald's there. That's about it. <laughs> right. You know, it, you know, once they become fat in America, you know, you've got them. You know, they're in. They don't want war. They just want cheeseburgers. Right. 
And fast cars, big cars. That's uh, basically going on in Saudi Arabia, UAE, like mm-hmm. Hardee's. Yeah. Hardee's especially has really made a big push, and there's a huge diabetes problem now there. <laughs> there's a massive diabetes problem. And like the Bahrain Dominoes on this Vice segment that I watched about, it was like the happiest place on earth to work. It was so cute. Did you see um, the Vice doc on um, the smuggling one? Did you see that one? They were smuggling, like, fast food into some of these countries. No. They've got, like, these tunnels, right? Like, you would think they're, like, people would think you think you're running drugs and stuff like that. It's like they're running, like, yeah, Hardee's and KFC and all kinds of other fast food into countries that don't have it underneath the tunnel to get past the, um, like, the priests and stuff like that. Yeah. It, it was it, nuts. It was the craziest thing I've ever seen. It's hilarious. Uh, all right, so has Iran broken the deal? That's a big question. They say, uh, Vox says no, but a little bit yes. According to the IAEA, the UN's nuclear inspectors, Iran continues to comply with every part of the nuclear deal. As of today, I can state that Iran is implementing its nuclear-related commitments. The IAEA Director General Yuki... Yuki Amano <laughs> said on March 5th, uh, Iran Iran is no closer to having a nuclear weapon, but it has slightly violated some of the technical terms of the deal over the past few years. For example, Iran twice exceeded that amount of heavy water nuclear re- reactors it could have, but the country came clean about this to the IAEA and then promptly shut down the reactors. But that's about it. So what happens now that we've left the deal? Uh, so, so they were doing, just doing power, and they... You're providing a market need for power, and they went over their cap to shut it down. Yep. So now here's where it gets complicated. He's left. All right. He's he's. Let's let's listen to a little bit of his speech. My fellow Americans, today I want to update the world on our efforts to prevent Iran from acquiring a nuclear weapon. The Iranian regime is the leading state sponsor of terror. It exports dangerous missiles, fuels conflicts across the Middle East, and supports terrorist proxies and militias such as Hezbollah. Hum- Harry, you seem like you want to say something. I just feel like, is he talking about the United States? <laughs> <laughs> My fellow... Uh, I can't go back, but I can't, apparently can't pause with this. But yeah, I had the same exact thought as I was listening to it. It's like... Okay, we do that. Okay, we do that. Okay, we do that. <laughs> like, we do that too. <laughs> and and here's here's the breakdown. So we we do all the same stuff. Okay, we everywhere though, not just the Middle East, like like everywhere. Right. We we essentially fund what the Iranians consider terrorists. We fund what Assad considers terrorists. Like so, it's it's like it's a moral equivalency. <laughs> And so the American, the idea of American exceptionalism, and and buying into you know the that, that America is more moral and America only has the world's best interest at heart, so therefore we can fund guerrillas in all of these countries, freedom fighters, freedom fighters. Excuse me, uh, it, it just doesn't to me hold water. Uh, I I believe that. If you want to be a morally superior country, then you can't do the things that you claim morally inferior countries do, which is what we we do the same stuff Iran does, and then we go they're bad, and then they go you're bad, and we go no, uh, we're superior. 
<laughs> so and yeah. and I know that that seems simplistic, but it's really not. It's not that. It's not supposed to be complex. Okay, when you're shipping arms and you're trying to destabilize regions and you're invading countries, then you are on the same moral equivalency as an Iran, as an Iran. A- a- am it's I just, crazy? It, it's different as a perspective, but yeah. Right. Yeah, and just a different perspective. It's it's we don't feel that way and there are some of you cringing because we've spent our entire lives being indoctrinated living in this country that everything that we do is right and this is for our best interest. Now if you want to be a pure pragmatist, if you just want to be a realist about it and say I understand that we're doing things that morally are aren't wrong, but I'm okay with it because I think we should do these things to keep the world stable. If you're a John McCain or a Lindsey Graham, then at least you're being honest about it. Right, yeah. <laughs> Instead of lying to yourself that somehow this flag represents more morality when they do the same things that the Iranian government yeah. or the Turkish government does. You're right, yeah, because McCain doesn't lie, doesn't shy away from that truth. That they, he more of just sits there and goes, no, no, you don't understand. You're looking this through a peephole. Okay? Right. You're just, you just didn't, you're, just, you're very small. Yeah, uh, you gotta understand. We had to give them arms to fight them, or they'd go over here with <laughs> other arms, or other people would arm them. Right. And, it's and, a it's a chess game. Yeah, and it's more of a, then we're trying to get favor with these rebels to hopefully they will go after people who are not in our in our interest, and then it's but they get screwed over each time. They keep kicking blowback. It's and granted, we're looking at that hindsight, and would they do they have more information? Will we probably make different moves there? Possibly, but I. You know, but am I, you know, personally as I am, would I, I wouldn't give out free guns. I'd probably charge for them more. <laughs> I'm that type of person or I would just, or I wouldn't restrict other companies from charging and selling things to people. Right. That's the difference between like, you know, a libertarian doing it versus a state government because the government, like, I ain't selling you crap, but you can go over here to Hornet and buy anything you want. I don't care. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I just, I look at this and, and if you want more thinking on non-interventionism and and the the misery that that causes go back and listen to our couple episodes on syria last month and i think you'll really get a a different perspective than you're really going to get if you listen to just conservatives and liberals liberals used to be anti-war they used to say the things that libertarians and non-interventionists are saying Mm -hmm. but they don't anymore because of barack obama broke that Right. Yeah. yeah. For eight years, they were silent in it. Right. Okay. So they they don't get to say they don't they come in with their high horse. I usually like, that's about the only thing I really come in and like try to hit most liberals with because you know like for eight years they were just quiet. I mean, first you know like I didn't care that much just to let them say it, but like I think it was like doing with Reinhold in the Discord. It was like no, no, they do not get to claim that title anymore. They do not to come back after eight years of Obama and be peace loving, you know, hippy dippy peace peace people again. No, you don't get that. Yeah. So now what happens? Nobody knows uh, because a lot of it's going to be based on how Iran reacts. Uh, they're the, the the EU is key to this. They've had the uh, Foreign Secretary Boris Johnson of the UK here last week, earlier this uh, late last week, talking to Trump. Uh, the French President Macron has was here talking to the French President and addressing Congress, talking about the need to renew this deal. Uh, Angela Merkel has spoken to Trump about this. They've had German uh, ambassadors here. Uh, this is. This is a very big deal to the EU because a lot of the Iranian oil revenue comes from 
purchases in the uh, EU. So the EU buys a lot of energy from the Iranians. I think it was like uh, – no, no, I'm not going to say that because I'm going to get that number wrong. I'm confusing numbers here. Um, so the EU really doesn't want to stop doing business. They liked that they were able to open up that market and mm-hmm. get that energy back. Yep. And get that those bank that money flowing back into Iran, and now if you're a British or French bank and you have an office in Manhattan, or if you use U.S. currency, you're now subject to the, these sanctions. And there's 180 days for these sanctions to go into effect, so there's six months. But that does that isn't going to stop companies from starting their exit plans or canceling any investments that they might have. So this is part of the the problem with sanctions is that commerce is happening, capitalism is happening, and the government is stopping that from happening. Right. It's intervening and forcing the free market, quote-unquote, to not take place. Yeah, picking winners or losers because now you can't get Iranian uh, fuel, energy fuel. Oh, guess what? We'll have to get it from Russia. Right. These sanctions... Who's going to be the real winner in all this? Yeah, the, the Russians and the Chinese were a part of this deal as well. And... The Russians and the Chinese, they're not as tied to the United States and their banking system as uh, the European Union. Mm-hmm. And so they're just going to – Tehran's just going to start dealing with Russia and China, and they're going to get the benefit of that economic growth. And the other outlier here is that if the United States continues to be so uh, fickle and won't keep its word or flip-flops every president on these deals – then people are just going to stop using the United States dollar as the currency of the world. There's already that discussion underway. I mean, <laughs> Russia and China already have those discussions. And, can, and, and what does that mean for you and me? It ain't good. It's a really crippling thing for our economy. Yeah, correct. But like with those fears, when it even comes down to it, nothing comes close. Right. Nothing. Russia and China can have those conversations all they want, but the only currency out there that really comes close is possibly uh, most countries won't move to like a, some sort of like cryptocurrency for it. It's about the most stable out of anyone's hands. So right. It could be something like that. Or going to a more hardline traditional currency like gold and using that. But when it comes down to it, most other countries' currency is such crap, the only thing left is the United States dollar. There's right. nothing even close. There's nothing close. Yeah. Unless you want to go to something radical like cryptocurrency or gold and silver, mm-hmm. you know, you no, know, just because like, well, like someone to go to the Chinese, like no one's going to trust the Chinese dollar because every because China's government still is communist. It's, it's it's they haven't touched it, they haven't done anything, they won't move. But it's still at the end of the day, that's kind of risky for most countries, right? Uh, say, uh, with Russia, yeah, they poison people. Okay, <laughs> um, <laughs> right. <laughs> You know, it's you know, it's more of like I'm going to withdraw my bank. Oh, you, how about you, not? You know, so it's the United States at least pl- pretends to play and does play by a set of rules. The currency is eh, too much, most as stable as any other currency, more stable than any other currency around, and it doesn't you know devalue itself like China keeps constantly devaluing itself. Right. So no, there's nothing close, and that's another reason why I like to you know. I will give you that, that if the dollar does go, there's nothing to stop it. Right. There's nothing. But there's nothing. But there's only reason to worry about that if something ever comes close. Mm-hmm. And I just don't see anything on the market that's even close. 
Reinhold says the UN's creating its own standard. Russia, China, and Iran, and some other countries no longer use the the dollar, and this is part of the reason why. Uh, so the the blow to our allies is important. It it also, as Trump said in that speech. Uh, later in it, that Pompeo was meeting with uh, the North Koreans. He's meeting with them, presumably, as we speak. Uh, and you're talking about doing a nuclear deal with the North Koreans right in the middle of breaking a deal. Uh, I'm sure Trump will try and spin it and say, well, the deal that I'll cut with you will be great. It will be fantastic. Like, the reason Trump doesn't like this deal is that Trump wasn't involved in it and that Obama was, and that Republicans and conservatives say this was a bad deal. They're not wrong. Like there, there are inherent problems with uh, putting into writing that they can have nuclear weapons. You're just going to cripple their ability. One, two, that you're giving them pallets of cash. Which uh, that that the reason we gave them pallets of cash is because cash is untraceable. So that American dollar is then flow, you know, flown on pallets to Syria, to Assad, or to. Uh, other allies like Hamas or Hezbollah, and so your American dollar that was on that, all your tax money that was on that pallet sitting in Tehran in 2015 was then used to fund terrorism. Uh, so that's a huge problem with with the deal. The second is that sunset provision, the fact that in 15 years they could just say no thanks and then restart their program. But I look at it and say they really were... They had mothballed their program for whatever reason. They had these centrifuges, but it didn't seem like they were actively working on it. It's not like Kim Jong-un, where he's actively trying to build a bomb. I mean, they were trying to build a bomb until 2003, and then they really kind of slowed down on it. Uh, so so, so Trump is right. There, there are major problems with the deal, but is he going to get a better deal by trying to work outside of that framework when threatening and because here's what ha- what could happen. They could treat America and Trump like a tantruming child and just cut America out of this whole equation altogether uh, and just go on their merry way. The EU just accepts whatever penalties there may be or fights these penalties with the United States and China as well and Russia. And then we have rising tensions with our allies Um and it diminishes our credibility with uh, people that we're trying to do deals with, like North Korea. Uh, not to mention, and, and it really kind of at this point, we don't know what's going to happen because we don't know how Iran's going to react. Are they going to continue working with the Europeans and, and Russia and China? Or are they going to throw a tantrum and throw it all out the window and escalate all of this? Uh, my, uh, they're not dumb, so I'm sure they won't, mm-hmm. but... Uh, we we seem to have elected the only person who I, I see I see I see the thinking of the Trump administration, but I don't necessarily think that they understand or that Donald Trump understands the full unintended consequences of this action. And as we talked about last time, uh, you know, they're they're not prepared for this. They they didn't prepare any of our, our allies. I think he basically told Macron, and that's how the New York Times broke the story today, but uh, you know, it was clear he wasn't going to do this, but oof. It, it is it. I see people. Oh, this is going to end in war. This is going to end in war. No, it's not. It's not going to end in war. <laughs> if it does, it'll be between Iran and uh, Israel. But let's all calm down. I listened to the Ron Paul podcast about this, and he's like, the neocons are taking us to war. 
And then, you know, the, uh, the, when they when oil prices go up, there's going to be a false flag incident. And it, I'm like, just like, Ron. I know. He just needs to move to Keene, smoke weed with Ian, and just sit on the porch. <laughs> it is funny how, like, post-Congress, all those things that, like, during his two presidential runs, you were like, Ron Paul doesn't isn't a conspiracy theorist. But then, like, now that he's loosed, he's just like, Oh yeah, there could be a false flag incident at any time. I mean, false flags exist in some respects, but mm-hmm. like, uh, you know, like the 2013 gassing in in Syria is doubtful. We don't know if Assad did it or not, but because everyone and 80 percent of America, for instance, has a camera in their pocket, conspiracies are harder to get away with. Right. Uh. So, I don't know. Take like that Bigfoot. You listen to the Ron Paul podcast about this, and you're just kind of like. I'm not getting anything out of this. There's just it's just an old guy screaming about neocons. And listen, I love Ron. I was I took hell on my even Tom Woods piled on my Facebook today because I dared speak ill of Ron Paul. <laughs> when Tom Woods calls you out, <laughs> uh, love Tom, uh, mm-hmm, but mm-hmm. he you know he was really calling someone else out. But it, it, yeah. still. Uh, that Tom that senpai noticed me. Yes, senpai noticed me. I do want to mention like Reinhold here in the comment section. It's like 2018 geopolitical politics is which pipeline is bigger. What does that mean? Um, fuel pipeline. Oh, okay. Energy pipeline. Yeah, yeah. No, it's all energy. Yeah, it's all energy. Yeah. Bill Weld this weekend said that when he meets with world like leaders of other countries or or geolocations, the, they all all they talk about is water, food nuclear pro- proliferation and energy like those are the four concerns of most world leaders at this point yeah. um alistair nicole tom woods a pussy in the chat whoa 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 whoa, whoa. burn him he's a witch uh <sighs> all right so this concludes our uh iran deal hunk uh i'm surprised he did it especially with the moving of the embassy in two days in israel this is going to completely uh, bury all of that. The foreign policy establishment, like the Fareed Zakarias of the world, they're panicking. It's the end of the world. This will be war. Donald Trump's a madman. The right is cheering. Donald Trump's a genius. Uh, then we need to go to war with Iran. Like everybody, just take a deep breath. It's going to be fine. There's there's serious ramifications to this, but nobody knows what they are yet. It's probably not going to be a war. So take a breath. What Trump is probably doing in his mind, if I were to guess is he's playing hardball to try and get a better deal. And I would have called this a dumb strategy if the North and South Korean leaders weren't shaking hands at the DMZ. So, (laughs) all right, let's all just take a deep breath. Um, Any final thoughts for you on the Iran deal, Harry? It'd be nice. It'd be interesting to look back at this in six months and see what has happened. Yeah. All right, I want to take a, a moment to thank a couple people who sent some stuff off of our Amazon wish list, which you can find at the bottom of We Are Libertarians. Zach sent, uh, uh, I have another one. Oh. A nice uh, Logitech streaming camera that I'm going to use. Uh, for a, like for election night, we're going to start doing some live streaming. I'm going to play with that when I get a free moment. Uh, and, and an unnamed donor. Uh, you gotta If you do send something and you put something in that little note, the little box, put your name. Because otherwise, I have no idea who sent it. And so somebody sent us a very fancy, expensive cord that is going Ooh. from the board into Ooh. the recorder. It's thick. Girthy. And, uh, yeah, these these cords, this is gold-plated Mangami. What is it? Uh, yeah. Ma- ma- yeah, they're like the really high-end fancy ones. And, you can, like, here's the thing about cords. Mm-hmm. You can go with the cheap send-it cords for 11 bucks. 
but you're going to get noise and like your vo- my voice will sound like this if it's on yeah. a cheap chord but with a gold monogamy or whatever it is uh, mm-hmm. then it mm-hmm. sounds great so thanks Taxes for everything yeah so thanks for helping us sound great uh also thanks to uh christy avery craig DeCosta, jason doolittle and uh, Brandon Luke for being our $100 subscribers on Patreon. If you want to support the program, it costs money to do this. It co- it takes a lot of time. If you get benefit out of this program and you'd miss it if it was gone, then please support us at wearelibertarians.com. Hit the Patreon button. Become a subscriber. We'll give you some bonus content. Uh, and I thank you guys for doing that. Now, this weekend uh, was the Libertarian Party of Indiana convention, and uh, I won't bore you with details of local stuff. We already did that. Um, uh, speaking of which, how is Nice? How's our boy doing? <sighs> Hasn't been reporting, but it's not looking good. I oh. think he might get in sixth. All right. But it's okay. Six yeah. out of seven. At least he's not the loser. Right. Uh, it's, so anyways... Uh, so Bill Weld was in town speaking mm-hmm. to the Indiana Convention. He's spoken to Texas, uh, I think California, and New York, he said. Uh, now, here's my thing about Bill Weld. Bill Weld, if you don't know, was the guy that ran with Gary Johnson in 2016 as our vice presidential candidate. Uh, he was a governor of Massachusetts in the 90s, and he was uh, he was considered a libertarian governor because in the 90s he... He uh, advocated for legalization of marijuana. He didn't hate gay people, and he cut taxes. Uh, so, then, <laughs> and in the nineties, that made you uh, a, a libertarian. Uh, although politics is much more complex. So, I put the speech that he gave up in the raw audio politics feed. You can listen to that for yourself. He also did an, uh, an interview with our friend Abdul. I put that in there as well. Um, I had, I. I had no real here are the feelings that I had about Bill Weld and the thoughts. I I wasn't blown away by him at the convention time. I felt it was clear that he didn't totally grasp the philosophy. Uh he brought gravitas to the ticket and uh an air of credibility. And I think because partly because he was on the ticket, partly because of who was on the other two tickets, the Gary Johnson campaign got unprecedented press and tripled the numbers. Uh, and I think every time I saw the two of them on TV, I would think, why isn't Bill Weld our presidential candidate? He's way more prepared to be president. He's a total policy wonk. Uh, and Gary Johnson's not. <laughs> and where's Aleppo, like Bill Weld knows. Uh, and he was very squishy. I don't know. He just did, He's not an inspiring person. Uh, and then stuff started happening through the campaign, and then like the last straw for me was the vouching for Clinton and like I like everyone else saw the little soundbite and I read all the clickbait headlines, mm-hmm. but I never actually did my due diligence. And um, so I'm glad that I got to hear him explain that. I knew there was some gun stuff and some stuff in New York. Um, so, uh, you know, he had a mixed record, and I knew the anarchist hated him, so that kind of made me for him. <laughs> uh, like, Roger Paxton really hates him, so I was like, maybe this guy's not bad. It's Let me take so a look. Bad. Right, maybe it's so bad. <laughs> so, uh, so, so let's take a look at the Bill Weld record, and then we're going to talk a little bit about Adam Kokesh. So, so why- what did these anarchists in a political movement again? Uh, yeah, exactly. Uh, and anarchists are running for president. We'll talk about that in a minute. But anyway, so um, Weld is making the circuit, and it, listen. It, 
everybody's playing coy and oh, he just wants to support the party, but he's running. He wants to run for president in twenty twenty. I'm not an idiot. Okay, I know what's going on. You, you, you know nothing, <laughs> right? <laughs> so he, um, so there's there's four things that he addressed that I want to bring up about Bill Weld because they're kind of the common myth, and I think that you you like me heard a lot of stuff that was going on. Uh, Alistair Nye says if Roger hates someone, they're usually sane. Oh, <laughs> Alistair's on fire today. <laughs> He's bringing the heat uh, in the chat. If you want to, if you want to join the chat, Patreon, ten dollars a month, and you get the the notification that we're live, and you can watch the uh, live stream and join the chat, so we can uh, Harry monitors that. Uh, so first is guns. Okay, so Bill Weld was a governor in the '90s in Massachusetts. Uh, he was mentioned in 96 as a, as a presidential candidate. I'm reading something from uh, uh, 1993, September 1993, from the UPI, Reversing Stance, Mass Governor Urges Gun Control. Uh, governor William Weld, often mentioned as a possible presidential candidate in 96, reversed his stand on gun control Wednesday, urging bans on most assault weapons in Massachusetts and the sale of hun- handguns to anyone under 21. Well, also proposed a state Brady bill to institute a five-day waiting period for all handgun purchases in Massachusetts uh, to allow for background checks, recommending increased penalties for a wide range of weapons offenses. Um, Well, the first-term Republican who opposed a ban on assault weapons when he ran for governor in 90 said he changed his mind because of the growing number of teenage murders and weapons on city streets. Democratic Attorney General Scott Harshberger, Weld's likely opponent next year in the gubernatorial election, said he was glad to see the governor has finally come to his senses on the issue. Uh, Weld's proposal would prohibit only assault rifles with clips of more than 15 rounds. So, now this was 1993, okay? Uh, I was in first grade, so obviously my thoughts on various issues have changed. And I, like Bill Weld, came into the Libertarian Party in favor of gun control. When I was hired to be the executive director, I was like, yeah, why wouldn't you limit some weapons? Because I was totally ignorant on the subject. I'd never seen a gun. I'd never fired a gun. I still haven't, but I've been around plenty of gun owners. I've been in the room with plenty of guns. I've been to gun shows. I've been to ranges. Like, I totally have an appreciation for firearms and weapons, and I was like, yeah, just go hunting. Like, what else do you need it for? But then people started explaining the reason for the Second Amendment. The reason is to protect you from tyrannical governments and to protect your community and to protect your person. And so from a philosophical standpoint, over time, I completely changed my thoughts on the issue. And when you hear, and so I want to give Bill Weld, I'm going to do something that I don't think many people do, which is give Bill Weld a chance to speak. <laughs> I think it's just so popular now to take a shit on Bill Weld that you that if you just mention Bill Weld on Facebook, people don't even read what you're saying or read what you're posting or watch the video or any of that. They just start, Bill Weld sucks. If he's the candidate in 2020, I'm leaving the party, blah, 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 instead of like giving the guy a chance to listen to him. Okay, uh, So I'm being easy on him, but I'm also going to be easy on Adam Kokesh, who is a person that I don't like. Uh, who I don't think would be a good candidate, but I had a softening on that too. So let's give Bill Weld a chance. This was during his speech as he talked about uh, guns. 
On guns, the deeper I get into this issue, we just, we got to tell the truth here, which is that there are 300 million rifles out there. We got to come to a societal consensus that they're not going anywhere. They were all lawfully acquired. And it just would pit the government too much against uh, against the citizens to try that, no matter what you may think about uh, dogma. I think it would be a terrible thing for society. And, and, you know, at the end of the last campaign, I went to South Dakota. I went to a little town called Deadwood, which has a lot of Indian lore, T-shirts and stuff. I bought a sweatshirt, the picture of the Indian chief Geronimo. He's holding a rifle over his head. He's kind of grinning at the camera. And the top of the sweatshirt says... Turn in your weapons. And the bottom says, the government will protect you. (laughs) So Geronimo persuaded his tribe to turn in their weapons, and they were immediately enslaved. And, you know, enslaved is better than what usually happens throughout history when people are persuaded by their government to turn in their arms. Usually they get slaughtered. Think of Joe Stalin's Soviet Union. In Germany, it was very hard for a certain class of citizens to have firearms ownership from the 30s on. It was called the Jewish population of Germany. Exterminated. Stalin, 20 million dead. Hitler, 13 million dead. Other countries, Uganda, Idi Amin, just millions slaughtered. Uh, Armenians in the early days of the 20th century, slaughtered by the Ottomans. When, when, and, and every single case, there were... Firearm, penal laws making it very difficult for citizens to own firearms. So if you get deep into the history here, it kind of washes away all the contemporary uh, discourse here. So I think we're on the right side of that issue. And if you put it that way, telling people why we think that restrictions on private firearm ownership are a bad idea, instead of just asserting it as a conclusory matter, you know, pointing to history, uh, I, think, I think we're better off. So there's many other areas where I think we're on the right side of the issue. Uh, Education, we need to abolish the U.S. Department of Education. All right. So, Harry, what what are your thoughts on that? Um, Yeah, exactly right. He was talking about giving a great example. It shows that he understands the gut issue. You can see in his heart like he wish for people to be peaceful but he also i think from saying that he understands that you can't do anything and the realism if you even want to take the guns out there there's so many out there that you will have to have a tyrannical government to one to even take take get rid of the guns that are out there right and just showing the the history of every time and a government has ever gone after that uh yeah, so it's, it's you're ignorant of history if you don't even think about it. Yeah, so what what that example like that was a great example of Bill Weld the policy wonk, you know, giving you a bunch of facts and figures, and I'll touch on that in just a moment. But somebody asked specifically about what we uh, the assault weapons ban uh, that we talked about that 1993 article. Uh, someone asks about that, and hear his his explanation and answer on that. Governor, I love both of you guys last year, and I like what I'm hearing tonight even more. But there's a question that's nagged at a lot of people that I heard down here on the ground last year. There was something that happened in Massachusetts about guns when you were governor. Do you know what I'm talking about? It. You know, I actually don't. What is your side? I actually don't. I know that my staff was wildly in favor of abolishing AK-47s. 
I never was. I don't think it happened. I mean, I know it didn't happen. Uh, so I just was not on the same place as my staff. I, I had not had the benefit then of, uh, of uh, some of the research I've done more recently, which solidifies me in my position. Matter of fact, uh, I, I said uh, in California last week, I blushed to think of some of the things I said at the Orlando Convention, chief among which was, oh, yeah, I love guns. I'm a hunter and I own all kinds of guns. Well, that's not the point. Self-defense is the point. Uh, and, uh, you know, I know, I know the, the uh, Mike Yacino and the Gun Owners Action League in, um, in Massachusetts was plenty sore when a bill got filed. Uh, not really my fingerprints. All right. Do you buy it? Who really knows? I don't, it, it doesn't matter because it happened in 93. Like I said, I was in the third grade. Right. Um, you were, what, fifth grade at that time? Fuck you. Um, uh, <laughs> I was in third grade. <laughs> no, if it was 93, I was in... Fifth grade? First grade. First grade? 93? No, 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 no. When was Clinton... Uh, I watched the... Yeah, 93. I was in third grade. Yeah, I was going to say, you shouldn't have been in first grade. You should have been in... Because th- I was in the third grade well, I got held back. <laughs> oh, man. Yeah, uh, yeah but, I... Um, Go ahead. But yeah, but people like, but ninety three to twenty sixteen, that's huge, huge margins to be able to to change. Um, right. I know I was like anti gun for a while for myself, you know. But you just change, sure. You know, Especially change. on something Especially like when you get older, the gun issue. Yeah, and you also understand it's like because when it comes to someone looking at guns, if you're staying mostly if if all you know is the city, you can. A lot of people who have stayed in inside of a city keep uh, a little bit more sympathetic to gun control. One, because even the idea of shooting a gun off in Boston sounds dangerous in the first place because I don't think there's a safe direction. Right. Um, and even if you do try to shoot someone in front of you that is doing harm to you, there's probably 30 other people right behind this person because so wait, of how you're dense say- the city is. You're saying Boston isn't safe. Boston and, isn't and, safe. And I hate get, going to Boston. You could get murdered in Boston. Yeah, you get murdered in Boston. Thank God Bittner lives in Boston. <laughs> <laughs> Not where he's at. He's in White Boston, where the yeah. um, uh, he's at Harvard. Yeah, he's the yeah uh, yeah he's he's fine. not at Harvard. She's at Harvard. The yeah. reason he went to. Uh, that angel that took Bittner from us. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Homewrecker who took my Bittner. I haven't you know. T- I think she's an angel for taking Bittner. Uh, yeah. So. I I'm convinced by it. I mean, I I think he's uh, he's saying the right thing, and I think they're in the back of people's minds. There's well, he's saying this because he wants to use the Libertarian Party for its nomination. <laughs> Here's my problem with that argument. Why why would anybody want to use the Libertarian Party? <laughs> <laughs> like <laughs> with its trophy of wins. Let let me right when with its. Tens and tens of wins across the nation over 40 years at low-level races. Let me just be very frank. I am on my 10th year of being a Libertarian Party person. Uh, It's not my last, but it's probably my last of being heavily involved uh, or involved in any way, shape, or form beyond going and reporting on things. As you get ready for your District 7 run in 2020? (laughs) Right. No, I, 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 I attended my 10th convention this past weekend. And I love it, and I love seeing the people there. 
because they're all old friends because the faces never really change. You know, mm-hmm. like we're we're I'm we're 10 years into this experiment in my life and I haven't seen a lot and I gave a tremendous amount of energy and effort uh from 2008 to 2012 built up something that I felt was was pretty good and then it collapsed after 2 years after I left. Like and people did their best to keep track of it, but the libertarian party is a very fragile thing. And it it doesn't have any power whatsoever. Uh, there are benefits to it, but there's no power behind it. So why would somebody come and want to use the Libertarian Party, especially somebody like a Bill Weld, who was treated so poorly? <laughs> like, part of it was deserved, but also, like, we understand what it's like to be in the Libertarian Party. It sucks. Like, it's like Judd, Judd uh, Weiss said on Lions of Liberty. It's like putting your sweet little puppy dog in a dog kennel full of wolves. You know? Like, it's a distillation of the most angry, loudest voices over the past 40 years, and it's just like, you, like, the the anarchists just... Shouting dogma. Uh, Shouting dogma at you. And it's just fighting and awful, and you can't say anything, and like, go read our Facebook page. I hate, I hate the people on that page more than I hate Republicans or Democrats. Like, they're just all annoying. Anyways, I need a vacation, Harry. Uh, but, <laughs> but no, like, it's coming I, soon. Porkfest is coming. I love, oh, that'll be, yeah. I love the idea of the Libertarian Party. I'm struggling with the con, with the, with the execution of it. And so when somebody says Bill Welch coming in to steal the Libertarian Party and corrupt it, it's like the dude has no organization. He has no real power himself. He's like 75. He's just – he wants to stay – he wants to be involved. If he's using it, he's using it for uh, – he's using it to stay in the game, I guess is the way to put it. But I, I do get the sense that – go ahead – yeah, but would it have been easier just to stay a Republican, move to like some suburb of Massachusetts if he wanted to do that? That'd be so much easier. Maybe. He could run a name recognition some BFE town. On- it, it, you got a good point. Former governor of Massachusetts, as he said uh, in, in one of the Q&A, like, I got some juice in Boston. I'm a former governor. And he's right. You know, he's he's rich. Yeah. He, he doesn't need the Libertarian Party and the grief that it causes. Uh, so am I, am I getting, uh, killed in the chat by our people for saying this? No, no. Um, some of them are agreeing. Um, uh, yeah. Like I, like I see, like I see Rick Irvine in the chat there and Rick, I hope I'm not speaking out of turn. I certainly, uh, like I can tell Rick is burnt out because Rick has been involved for two or three years. Mm -hmm. He just put on a fantastic convention for the Libertarian party of Indiana. He did a great job with it. He and his wife. And uh, he's he's burnt out by it because it was a lot of work and there was little help. You know, Rodney, who is who is the vice chair, he's burnt out. He's been involved for four years. He kind of picked up the torch where I left and, you know, gets paid no money for it and works 20 hours, 40 hours a week on this stuff mm-hmm. and did it because of the, the ideology and the dream of growing the party. But you get worn out. Yeah. And then it's next man up. But there's not many next men up. There's not a big and it's just getting worse because millennials don't join a political party. So it's not just libertarians. It's the Democrats and the Republicans are all going, oh shit, (laughs) the demographics are not on our side. Like the future is not political parties. There are young people who get involved in political parties and they're social climbers. They're doing it because they want 
some significance in their life. They want to be important. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, I've seen people who I've worked with, you know, and it just, I don't know. The life cycle of a Libertarian Party member is about three to four years. And then they're gone. And I've I've lived through three and a half, four revel- cycles now. And I just haven't seen a lot of growth. We're still struggling after a decade of those same issues. And even though I put my heart and soul into it and damn near pretty much cost me the marriage that I had uh, because I was a workaholic, mm-hmm. like, for what? You know, so I hate saying this because I don't want to demotivate people in, to get involved. I think people should get involved and try it and see what they want. But it is. It's a frustrating environment. And when you're uh, running for office and you're Bill Weld and you're showing up to conventions and half the people hate you and then they you get their nomination, then 75% of them motherfuck you the whole time. Like, what's what's the virtue of that? Like, what is he really using? Like, it's not like, I, in my opinion, like, I think Austin would have been a phenomenal, Austin Peterson would have been a phenomenal presidential candidate. But I also think there's part of me that thinks that he ran for that position in 2016 to build the Austin Peterson brand and the websites that are attached to that. And I think that really helped. Mm-hmm. And I think Adam Kokesh is doing the same thing. He's using the the party to grow his own brand. And I think that's why he keeps projecting that onto Weld, saying he's using the party, he's using the party. Like, he doesn't he doesn't need money. He right. doesn't need power. He doesn't need significance. He doesn't need achievements. He doesn't need accomplishments. And he definitely doesn't need a bunch of basement-dwelling libertarians like us. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, yeah, screaming at him at every event he gets to. Exactly. Holding up Hillary Clinton signs yeah. as he arrives in Texas. Like, gr- grow the fuck up. Yeah, yeah. Like, it's, 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 and then people like the, the useful people, the mm-hmm. Libertarian part, Party is Atlas Shrugged in action, on accident, because the useful people leave because they're they're frustrated by the people who are idiots that hold up Hillary Clinton signs to Bill Weld. Well, all right, so I, I see what you're saying. But the thing is, that's the – you've done a great job of, one, bringing people into the LP, just showing people how awesome it is just to, one, understand that to create a community. And, and if your local party isn't, like, more of a community-based – You've shown people like the love of that, right? Just that aspect of that, right? Right there. Um, do people get burnt out? Yeah, most of the time when at Liberty Chill, when uh, Michael's there, he is just as like, "What are you doing, Peter? I'm doing LP stuff," and he right. just, 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 just like, "Man, he's working on it all the freaking time." Yeah. Um, and I can see like the burnout that happens for it, but I think the most of the burnout really just happens just for the fact that you know you don't get that many attaboys. Right. You yeah. mess up, everyone's on your back. If you do good, everyone's still on your back. Right. You know, and you didn't do enough. And then you've got these idiot and caps inside of a freaking, you know, political party for some freaking reason shouting dogma at you and it's, and demand all these different things, but none of them are willing to step up and act it. Yeah. Then fine then. Fine. If you think this is what the LP should do, then you should be having, then go for all these positions. What? You don't have people to fill in these positions? You just want to sit in the peanut gallery and hone up signs and complain? Right. But you shut the heck up. And these are the people that at National, they stick around for the bylaws and the platform because that's how they can carve away it. I want to read something. um, Well, yeah, because a lot of them don't have jobs on Monday. (laughs) I want to read something by John Hospers called The Libertarian Temperament Versus the Anarchist Temperament. 
It's a little long, but I think you'll really get uh, you'll get something out of it. It's it's really really good. I want to distinguish the libertarian temperament from the anarchist temperament, and this distinction is quite important because there are many anarchists within the Libertarian Party. Now, this is John Hospers, who is our first presidential candidate, uh, the only openly gay person to receive an electoral vote, along with Tony Nathan, the first woman to receive an electoral vote. Um, So he's talking about this difference. While anarchism as a theory may have a lot of arguments in its favor— I do not wish to question these here or to raise the philosophical issue of anarchism here. I could even assume that all anarchist arguments are quite valid and yet make the same point. I am concerned here only with the psychological aspects of anarchism, or should I say, anarchists. In traveling here and there about the United States during the recent presidential campaign and since, I have come up against many an anarchist, and more than 90% of the poison pen letters I have received have come not from statists but from libertarian anarchists. I certainly do not want to be guilty of overgeneralization or to tar everyone with the same brush. But I have certainly noticed, as doubtless many of you have, a recurring personality pattern among those who label themselves anarchists. Part of it can certainly be called rebellion against authority, but this, to a libertarian, is quite all right if it means that no one else has the right to rule your life without your consent. This is indeed the basic principle of libertarianism. But there is more. There is a strong, usually I would say a neurotic, rebellion against all forms of discipline, especially self-discipline. There is a childish insistence on the obviousness of all points of anarchist doctrine and of the evil and malevolence of anyone who makes an honest point against it. There is either an unwillingness to enter into a calm, sustained argument about it, or a childish frenzy in which they conduct arguments which makes it difficult for anyone to enter into it with them, without being at the receiving end of name-calling and numerous personal slurs. I have seen this tendency reach the point of petulant screaming and stamping of feet, so that any impartial observer, regardless of whether or not he understood the arguments at issue, would exclaim, These are a bunch of spoiled children! Can it be that they never have grown up? That they love to dish it out but can't bear to take it? They give it because they really have no experience in the cultivation of rationality? Many of them take to anarchism because it seems to give theoretical justification for their own psychological tendencies. They can't really get along with anybody for a sustained period of time, and anarchism is the ultimate extreme in decentralization in one's relations with other human beings. One doesn't have to do anything he doesn't want in relation to anyone, not even the state, since in the anarchist ideal the state, of course, is absent. Thus it is not an accident. I think that the unconscious formula that the typical anarchist projects is go screw yourself. The view provides a convenient intellectual camouflage for their psychological propensities, egoists versus egoists. Now, all of this is very unfortunate from the standpoint of the Libertarian Party. It simply cannot grow as long as it is fractured into warring splinter groups with the anarchists shouting from the housetops, for all the world to hear what stupid idiots or fiendish devils all the other libertarians are. With a group so small to begin with, it is not difficult to imagine what picture the outside world will form of a party, some of whose factions at least parade their differences as if they had no principles in common. Most people try to reduce everybody else to a slogan anyway, and the libertarian party is not accurately represented by any quick and easy slogans. The first impression people have of us, from a couple of sentences in the daily paper, is that we are a bunch of crackpots anyways. And this is the initial impression that is reinforced when they hear the the anarchists berating the rest of us. 
they then feel their initial impression of us is justified and don't bother to go on to investigate our views further. They have already got us tagged, and the tag is as far as it goes and their subsequent attitude towards us. The result is that every time this happens, we have lost a possible ally. Anarchism, as I see it, is an issue for the far future as far as practical application is concerned. If we get to the point where nine-tenths of the present government functions are government functions no longer, then we can consider the question of whether what remains is best performed by government or by private individuals and organizations. It is virtually certain that we shall never reach that point if we do not present a united front to the world. What we should be working together for is the progressive limitation of gov the government apparatus, not its immediate elimination. On this point, we can all unite against all the other political parties, and moreover, millions of people are so fed up with big government that they will surely listen to us if we get a chance to speak to them. The principal way in which we ourselves stand in the way of this, I think, is not only the anarchist doctrine, but the anarchist psychology. They will not listen to self-styled defenders of reason who simply rant and scream. They already have a big mental block to overcome when even entertaining the word anarchism, or I'd say libertarianism, with any sympathy since the word in most minds conjures up Im images of Trotskyites, bomb throwers, and saboteurs. And they surely will be turned off by totally by a person whose attitude towards them seems to be that it would be somewhat preferable if they didn't exist. Libertarians can't do without creative disagreement and free discussion within their ranks, but they jolly well can't do without the attitudes of contentious and badly thought up children. Hmm. Now, I would say that if you're like Harry and you are an anarchist, it they're not talking about you. He wasn't writing about you mm -hmm, mm -hmm. because you sit next to me each week mm -hmm. and we have a discussion. Right. He's talking about the people who are abusive of others. The, or as the, Jeffrey Tucker called them, the brutalists. Yeah, brutalists are anarchists for the win. Or I just want to win. Or I just want to browbeat and call everything a spook or thing doesn't exist or uh, for trying to find some sort of superiority versus the anarchist that, you know what? You know, you do your thing, right? You know, and understand the understanding that the it is a very unique thing. Well, not I don't want to say unique, but rare thing. One to even find a someone who has a libertarian thought, right? So to have an anarchist thought inside of another unique thing is just a, another unique thing. And the idea of, and and I was listening listening to another podcast, and I said this like earlier on the show was like the idea that I and I'm with him like. I don't really see that the world ever going to becoming like a anarchist, anarchist going to full on anarchy. Well, right. I don't think it will ever do that. I think when we come close, humanity might be in uh, multiple planet species, and we have anarchy on our ships because only people who get on the ship are people who want to be on the ship. Right. But you know, and the idea that I'm not wanting to push this on anybody. This is just what works for me. Yeah. And, you know, and I'm willing to hide in the cracks of society and be myself. Yeah. And I think we're going as a movement, uh, although many of us can just check out from the Libertarian Party movement, because there's a group of people and a group of networks that dip their toe in the Libertarian Party. There's a Venn diagram, I guess. And uh, there's a, a large part of me that just says, I don't even want to engage with this group anymore. 
Like, I'll just be a Beltway libertarian. I'll be like Matt Welch, who doesn't even bother going to conventions. <laughs> you know, like, I am a libertarian, but I'm not paying attention to who's important in the LP just because I just don't want to, I just don't want to be abused anymore. And I think what is going to happen in 2020 uh, between Weld and Adam Kokesh is going to be a shit show. Uh, it's going to be the the final battle, <laughs> although it won't be the final battle because you just heard something that happens every day that was written in 1980 <laughs> before anyone listening to this podcast was born except Reinhold. So it, it is such a – sorry, I didn't mean that, Reinhold. I, you're not old. Um, so – and I think it's exemplified here in this clip. Uh, this is uh, Adam Kokesh, who is a longtime libertarian and anarcho-capitalist agitator, uh, someone who has gotten into some trouble over the years. We talked about him back in 2013. He got arrested when he brought a loaded weapon onto the, the capital the U.S. Capitol. His home was then raided, and uh, he got arrested on gun charges. Uh, I think they pled him down, and then he uh, spent some time as a TV personality on RT, Russia mm -hmm. Today. Now, in in Adam's defense, RT was definitely Russian propaganda then, but it wasn't as uh, uncool to be on RT as it, then. I mean... I could see from his perspective, like, they're going to give me some airtime, and they were giving a lot of libertarians airtime, so why not take the slot? So so I don't necessarily hold that against him, uh, but I do think that would be an issue if he were our nominee. Uh, Kokesh got arrested earlier this year. Like, the day after he announced that he was running for president, he got pulled over and got busted on some drug charges. Uh, so he's been in jail. Um, he, he has always been... Uh, <laughs> Dubious, so, yeah. Some cloudy. have cloudy. Some have called him a cult leader. Yeah, well, it's uh, all the stuff that happened because of the during the Adam versus the Man episode uh, shows. Right, there's a lot of things that we found out when uh, Derek J went down there and MK Lords. Right, of stuff we, you know, a lot of speculative things that we couldn't find out. Like a lot of questions people had, yeah. and also questionable business practices and questionable anger issues. Yeah, uh, I think there was an accusation of a girlfriend of domestic violence at one point, mm -hmm. um, you know, which he refutes. So, and, and there's this this situation going on where he had a, a staff member who's from Indiana, who I know, name is Angela Fisher, where he put her on blast on YouTube saying she stole from the campaign. Her story is completely different. She doesn't want to tell her story for whatever reason. Uh, but, I mean, her, her story was... Um, Equally as compelling, and I would, if I were the Kokesh campaign, or if I were a donor to the Kokesh campaign, all I'm going to say is you should demand that Adam is completely transparent of where his finances are going, where the money is going, what it's being used for, uh, and you should demand full transparency. Uh, so, Adam is a person who likes to get attention. Now, far be it from me, Harry. Mm -hmm. To be mad at anyone for being a showboat for attention, <laughs> uh, so so I get that. Uh, but this is the kind of thing that I'm not crazy about. So this is Adam at the Texas LP or at the Texas LP convention, I believe it was, walking up to Bill Weld. Mr. Weld, good afternoon. Adam Kokesh, how you doing? Yeah, nice. Reza, hey. Well, I just I had I had a question. I'll, I'll, excellent. I, I, a lot of people in the Libertarian Party are wondering. 
How much did Hillary Clinton pay you off to support her in the last presidential cycle? I've seen some Hillary uh, uh, blue ribbons on this uh, uh, this convention here, so she, her, her uh, machine must still be strong. People have been holding them up in front of me. Well, do you understand that a lot of people who believe in the message of libertarianism have a problem with someone who advocates for so much contrary to our principles trying to be part of the party like yourself? Well, I don't think that's right, actually. I've been a libertarian since I was in school, starting with John Stuart Mill, going on through uh, Friedrich Hayek in law school. What does it mean to you to be a libertarian? It means that the individual is paramount and that the duty of government is to govern as little as possible, tax as little as possible. So taxation isn't theft? You want some taxation? Taxation is theft. That was my motto in 2016. In fact, uh, listen to this. So I like to quote the French uh, anarchist Proudhon who said that property is theft, as you may know. And I turned that around and said, no, it's not property that's theft, it's coercive taxation that's theft, which goes to prove that even anarchists aren't always right. So would you, <laughs> would you rescind what you said about Hillary Clinton as vouching for her in, in the 2016 election? I said vouch, not endorse. And I, I did pick that word on purpose because everyone in the world was saying this is the worst person that ever climbed out of a sewer. Uh, and I don't believe that that's true. So I wanted to give her... A, personal vouching since no one else was. So do you oppose the initiation of force to achieve political and social goals? Yeah, I would say I, uh, my, my motto is that the, the, uh, a well-functioning government is one in which the individual can never be thrust in a corner. And I've said that since my first term as governor. And that pretty much squares with the uh, libertarian philosophy in my view. So what do you think the proper role of government is? To govern as little as possible, to restrain men from injuring... Women. What is as little as possible? Well, that... Uh, what are the appropriate roles for government that, that you think are good for government to answer do? Answer the question. Answer the question. Uh, national defense, uh, providing for the common safety. Uh, but, uh, you know, for example, I would abolish the United States Department of Education tomorrow. How would you pay for national defense? Would you tax people to pay for it? Yeah, no, I'm not saying you can't have any taxation whatsoever. I, I do believe so you would steal from people because you want national defense. Well, I, I, think, I think we've gone on long enough. But anyway, it's good to see you, sir. Well, I admire your ability to take hard questions, but I cannot say the same for your lack of principles. You're vouching for Hillary Clinton and what is obviously an infiltration of the Libertarian Party, trying to represent this party with principles that obviously don't align with ours. And I hope someday that you'll actually take, take a good look at your conscience and see that the non-aggression principle that is the core principle of this party is something that is fundamentally based in ethics and that what you advocate for when... That goes on for two more minutes. Yeah. Him talking, that monologuing like that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. Now, like, also set the scene up. What was Bill well doing? Was he at a press junket? Was no. he, you know, oh. he, he was in a bar having drinks with a friend, oh, okay. I presume. Yeah, and yeah. Adam walked up and, and Weld stood up, answered his question, smiled politely as he monologued there. Uh, you know, so I, I really, I have to say to the people who, uh, who like Adam Kokesh, I get it. I, I think if you, so, so in the raw audio politics feed, I put up, uh, Adam Kokesh's, uh, sit down with Cynthia McKinney. You know who that is? You don't know who Cynthia McKinney is. Okay. Uh, you're in for a treat. So. Here, so Adam has, has bought space at the national convention for Cynthia McKinney. Okay. Now, good old Cynthia, 
back in the day uh, was a congresswoman. Uh, she was the Green Party nominee in 2008. She was first elected in 92, but lost her seat 10 years later. Um, this is from Rational Wiki. Uh, these are some of her positions. Uh, Sane supported the victims of Hurricane Katrina. Took an anti-war stance. Takes an anti-war stance even against brutal dictators. Um, and she supported disclosure of documents regarding the assassination of MLK. She thinks the government killed him and JFK. I, I mean, I'm not getting mad about that because I kind of do too. Uh, Cynthia McKinney was probably one of the – she was, I would say, the most anti-war of the Democratic uh, folks in d- during the uh, Iraq lead-up. She was uh, – v- I, being a, a little neocon at the time, was oh, I hate her. She's crazy. She was so right. She was right about all of it. <laughs> so when it comes to issues of anti-war, she was right, okay? Um, now, here are some of her other beliefs. Uh, believes the U.S. military shot and killed 5,000 prisoners during Hurricane Katrina and dumped their bodies in the bayou. Claims New Orleans executed thousands of people after Katrina. Supported the rule of Gaddafi and appeared on Libyan TV. Thinks vaccines exist to poison black kids. First reaction to the Boston Marathon bombing was to tweet that Boston cops were having the bomb squad drill on the same day, and a familiar pattern was emerging. Um, and then she's a firm supporter of Pizzagate. Uh, she, uh, if it's a terrorist act and the culprit yells Alua Alakbar, know the CIA speak for we did it. Uh, she is a truther. She, uh, let's see, let's fellow conspiracy Greg Palas reported in 2003 that none of the media outlets making this claim offer a proper citation of McKinney's alleged statements on the congressional records as she questioned it on the congressional floor that uh, um, she actually made the following statement on the congressional record. George Bush had no prior knowledge of the plan to attack the World Trade Center on September 11th. and uh, Unfortunately, Palace neglected to provide proper citation, so it's under dispute whether she actually put trutherism into that nomination. Uh, For her 2008 election, she had a very progressive, very, very progressive uh, platform. She she went further than Bernie Sanders uh, and, you know, basically provided very progressive uh, prescriptions, including using the state to, for full employment, $22 $22 an hour living wage, Oof. like like very progressive. And yeah. Adam Kokesh in this video says he voted for her and not Bob Barr, and then the crowd boos. Uh, Cynthia McKinney also believes that uh, in the Zionist Jewish conspiracy, there's a question in this that Adam reads in this in this video that is borderline anti-Semitic. <laughs> um, so you you look at this and you go, okay, Adam Kokesh says in the video that in 2008 he voted for Cynthia McKinney. He was very anti-war, so I can understand why he would vote for her because she was very Mm anti-war. I'll give him credit for that. But never in this 54-minute video does he ever put her to the screws on how she came to embrace anarchism and give up all of her progressive. He, he He glowingly praises her and lets her tell her story of her journey towards anarchism. He doesn't press her like she, he did Bill Weld, you know. And in two thousand and eight, frankly, Adam, Bob Barr was far more libertarian in in his platform and his words than Cynthia McKinney was. 
uh, he Bob Barr didn't go to the Ron Paul event because he wasn't going to be standing on the same stage as Cynthia McKinney and have a photo of him taken next to a 9-11 truther. And you think it's cool to be a truther now. It really wasn't cool in 2008. It was not – loose change wasn't out then. <laughs> or if it was, it was, it was just deeply circulating on the Internet. Yeah, it was it, just on the, yeah, it was right. on the Internet. Yeah. Uh, and now Jones Places. Yeah. So she was – she's a huge conspiracy theorist. So um, so I sent the following question off to the Kokesh campaign. Uh, they like Bill Weld. Uh, they're, they're offering an interview. They actually want to talk, and I'm going to talk – to uh, the Kokesh campaign and Adam himself, because I want to ask these questions directly. Uh, yeah. But I said, why does Adam give Cynthia a pass when he doesn't give a pass to Barr or Weld or even Johnson to a lesser degree? When he voted for McKinney, McKinney Barr's general platform aligned with libertarian principles, whereas McKinney's were more aligned with Bernie Sanders. There's There was nothing even close to the attitude he gave to Weld in the McKinney video. There wasn't even a hard question about her record. Her endorsement of anarchy was as tepid as Weld's is, honestly. Uh, why does he? Why does Adam trust McKinney to grow but not Weld? Secondly, McKinney has a long record of 9-11 truth. What role does Adam believe the U.S. government played in the 9-11 attacks? Will this be a campaign issue? Uh, so we'll, we'll wait to find that out. But I can guarantee you that it probably, <laughs> it probably will end up being an issue. So um, I... I have never liked Adam Kokesh because Adam is the type of person who embarrasses the libertarian movement. I just flat out say it. He does things that are embarrassing, and uh, it's it's gone on since 2008 and the Ron Paul days. Uh, but I had a great talk with his press guy, and you know he's like, "Have we had a good conversation? Yeah. Do I seem level-headed? Yeah. Well, Adam hired me. Okay." I'll listen. I wasn't even going to interview Adam, but honestly, his press guy was so level-headed, such a good dude. I'm going to have that conversation. Um, and he's like, listen, Adam's a different person. He's matured. He's grown up. And we'll see. I'm I'm just as – I'm more skeptical of Adam, I, honestly, um, because I know Adam's record. But Weld doesn't – he didn't uh, fill me with confidence either. <laughs> uh, here's the thing about Weld's speech is it was a 90s policy speech. He sounded like Hillary Clinton, and I don't mean that as a, as a slam. I mean he gave a speech that, a, that Harry Brown would have given. It was 90s issues of taxation, lower taxes, in the education department, very wonky, you know, never really touched on foreign policy, uh, and it sounded like a – a speech that a libertarian in the 90s would have given. Politics has changed, and people don't want policy wonks. Hillary Clinton tried to run a policy wonk campaign. She got her ass kicked by Donald Trump. And it's because voters want broad philosophical themes. They want to be inspired. And if you listen to the beginning of this this speech by Adam, which I'll pull up now, you hear what I'm talking about libertarians are never going to accept Bill Weld if he's just talking about policy prescriptions. It's uninspiring, and even libertarians need to be inspired. They need to trust. They need to know that they can trust Weld. Uh, and there's going to be a long road for him to really get to a place where libertarians fully trust him. Um, you know, and he's he's a policy wonk, and his opponent at this point is is this. The more I step back and look at this movement in historical context, 
the more excited I get for the prospects of our future. And if you look at where we are today, I think Anarchapolco is a brilliant manifestation of the growth of this movement. And I like to play a little game called libertarian fantasy math, where we try to guess how many of us there are in America. But no matter how you come to any kind of number that you want to put on it, it's impossible to not look back in history and see that we have grown from even just a few decades ago, where we were such a small movement that when you woke up, you would feel very alone. And it was a scary world to think that you were the only one who understood what reality was. And yet we can see over time that not only has this movement grown, but it has grown exponentially. And that is manifested here in this conference. But you and then he goes on to talk about the hope of the libertarian future. You see how he's, t he's using those broad themes about how you were alone and basically I, Adam Kokesh, have brought you from the wilderness into – and the libertarian message has brought you into a place of belonging and family. Uh, and, and that is always uh, a broad – family is a very important word amongst the more radical crowd of the libertarian movement. Um, you know – and so you're never going to beat that with policy prescriptions. You're just not. Because people want to be moved. They want to be inspired. That's why people love Larry Sharp. Larry Sharp inspires people to be libertarian and inspires them. That's why Ron Paul worked. Ron Paul, even in his, his own little old man way, we all went, oh, wow, yeah, I can change the world if I just do this and I end the Fed. Um, so... I, I think I think Weld uh, has a fight on his hands, and I would say that if you are a person who supports Weld, uh, you know I'm on the fence about him. But I would say that if you're a person that does support Weld, you better speak up because it's time for the I don't know the pragmatic people in the LP to stop being a bunch of pussies. Like stop stop not posting things because you're going to get hate on your wall from other libertarians. Just start calling those people what they are, rude, and start posting the John Hospers article that I'll put in the show notes. Just be, like, you're being a baby. Stop it. Mm -hmm. Grow up. Because how Weld is treated, how Gary Johnson is treated, is how other people are, are – are, they decide whether or not they're going to join us, right? Right. Like, your Facebook friends saw how you treated Gary Johnson. And they said, I'm not voting for Gary Johnson, and I'm definitely never going to become a libertarian because I don't want to be treated like that. Why would I go over there? Why? If you listen to that argument between Roger and I on that bonus episode that only Patreon subscribers can get for $5 a month at wearelibertarians.com, mm -hmm. why Why would you want to join that? Why would you want to be a part of that? Right. It's not fun. Mm -hmm. I didn't have fun. The, my audience didn't have fun. The people that had fun were like Roger and his cruel audience. Mm -hmm. <laughs> like, mm -hmm. uh, so... Yeah. The way that you are treating Bill Weld and the way that you treat Adam Kokesh mm -hmm. are the way that other people uh, expect to be treated. So be civil about it. Yeah. Don't be rude. You right. Know, have a cordial conversation. We're not saying, like, you have to agree. Right. We're not saying that. You can disagree, but, you know, just, you know, be cordial. Right. You know, because, like, 
that argument like that, it's like, you know, like how many people probably listened to that and said like, is that how Porkfest is? Right. Is that what's going to happen? I'm not excited for Porkfest because I don't know what I'm getting. Is that what's going to happen? Am I walking into a whole group of, you know, right? I'm new to libertarianism. Is that what's going to happen to me when I'm at Porkfest, when I open my mind? It's like... As someone who's gone to Porkfest several different times, that does not happen like that right. at Porkfest. It's you can have ideas, and people's like, "Well, I don't." You know, a lot of people usually sit there and go, "Like, you know what? No, I, I see what you're saying. I see where you're going. I don't like that." But you know, and they like a lot of people like to have cordial discussions. Yeah, and you know, just like they have, they have at Wall. Uh, so, so there's a third choice that is considering getting into this race. Um. And I think it'd be a serious race between Weld and this person. I'm not going to tell you who it is because I don't want to spook that person. Is it Brett? No, it's not Bittner. Okay. I All said right. serious. Uh, and it would it would be a unanimous choice, I think. I think this person would easily get nominated. So fear not. Uh, if you're uninspired by the two choices at this point for the 2020 nomination, there is a third thinking about it. Um, all right. I'm going to to play you uh, two answers. So when Bill Weld, back in 2006, uh, was running for governor on the Republican ticket, New York, I guess, has fusion voting, so mm-hmm. he wanted to add the libertarian line. So in April of 2006, he uh, confirmed he was going to seek the Libertarian Party's endorsement for governor. Uh, and uh, let's see... He the, the the LP there was very excited. Well, Weld, without even talking to the party, left them high and dry, and I think they didn't have a candidate at all that year because he screwed them over. Because at their convention, they had nominated him, and then he didn't run. Uh, so it was a very crummy thing to do. The person asking this question uh, is, um, man, I am totally blanking on it. Pink hair uh, from the Radical Caucus. Oh, Gosh, Richard you know who I'm talking about. Uh, I, I'm like, uh, so you remember I'm married with children. I'm like Kelly, and like you put one oh, fact. I can in, like see her you, in my yeah. head. Uh, somebody in there. Somebody's my, gonna know. Get her on um, Instagram real quick. She's uh, <laughs> met her for the first time this weekend. Yeah, because she was there. I remember she, she, yeah. He's, oh, get her on Instagram. Uh, <laughs> Awesome person, love talking to her. So friendly. She's working her butt. At Carol, Karen, Karen Ann Har- Harlos, Karen Ann Harlos, <laughs> running for secretary. Uh, she's going. She's going to like two conventions a weekend. She's working her butt off. Mm-hmm. Uh, and even though uh, she's from the radical caucus, uh, if I were a delegate, I'd probably vote for her um, because I just I think she adds a lot. She works really hard, <laughs> and you need a broad perspective on the board. But uh, Karen Ann, uh, she. See, the chat's delayed, Rick. That's why it took so long. But she is the one asking this question of Bill Weld about New York and then also the Hillary Clinton comment. I th- thank you, Governor Weld, for your, your speech. And I will say, like some other people said, I do think that you've progressed greatly from what I heard in 2016. And as I was sitting here, I was deciding, should I ask you know, an ideological question or some other question? And one time I'd like to sit down and just talk to you personally. But I, the, I'll, answer, I'll ask the question that's been on the top of my mind and some minds of people like me, and that's what happened in New York with your promise to stay 
their um, nominee, even if you did not get the Republican nomination. And I heard your answer in 2016, and honestly, that didn't, to me, and maybe I misunderstood your answer, jibe with what happened. So I'd like to, to hear your version of why you didn't keep your promise to the Libertarian Party of New York. I can't remember what I ha said in 2016, but it wouldn't have been a very good answer in any event, because there isn't a very good answer. What happened uh, is that just before the convention at Hofstra, uh, the Republican convention in 2016, when I was running for governor of New York, I got double-crossed by many senior members of the Republican Party, uh, and it became clear to me that uh, the Republican Party of New York, not Governor Pataki, who I think is an uh, upright guy, uh, but the Republican Party of New York had become corrupt. Uh, we had a, a party the night before the convention, and uh, a woman who is the wife of a senior person in the party came up to my wife and said, you tell your husband to stop talking about reform and getting rid of uh, corruption. I, I've been waiting, which I did as a prosecutor, I've been waiting 22 years uh, to you know, get admitted to the kingdom here, and now I'm going to get mine. And it, it kind of... Uh, Broke through. I had an aperçu that this is kind of like all the people in the Republican Party that I've been talking to in New York. So I became totally disgusted with it, frankly. Uh, and, uh, you know, I, I, I sort of took off and, and took, uh, uh, just took off and got away from politics. I Would it have been much better if I'd gone around to the Libertarians and said, this is what I'm thinking and, and this is exactly why I'm taking a, a, a time out here? Yeah. It would have been much better. I mean, that's something I really do regret. Uh, the famous Hillary remark, uh, I vouch for Hillary Clinton, I don't regret because I meant that just as a personal thing. You know, she's not a criminal, and all this classification of information as secret and top secret is a whole bunch of malarkey anyway. People do it just because they think it's going to be politically embarrassing. So I don't think she should go to jail for the, for the uh, emails. And candidate Trump was really saying she deserves to be locked up, and people were going for that. And nobody was defending her, except for Donna Brazel and members of the Democratic National Committee. So I said on, on air, listen, I've known her for 30 years. I think she's a good kid. I vouch for her. But I did not say that, you know, vote for the Democratic ticket over Johnson Weld, ever. Um, so that one, uh, that's probably the most famous of the canards that I've committed. But, but I don't feel bad about that one. Uh, the Libertarian Party of New York in 2006, yeah, I feel bad about that one. I feel even worse about pandering to the conservative party of New York uh, in that cycle, with whom I have absolutely nothing in common except being against uh, taxes. Uh, you know, they're real social conservatives. And I just, uh, I didn't run a good campaign there. I had a bad year in 2006. She basically asks, do you apologize for it? Oh, I do apologize to the... Oh, yeah. No, no, I got plenty of opportunity to do that when I went to the New York convention a few, <laughs> few weeks ago. <laughs> so what I like about that in Weld is that he owns it, and uh, I think that's a great exchange. Like, I didn't get a chance to talk to Karen about her impression of Weld, um, but I'm going to guess that she was probably somebody that wasn't totally crazy about Bill Weld uh, in 2016, and she asked a very difficult question in a very polite and respectful way, and he answered it honestly and thoughtfully, and he owned his mistake uh, and said he regretted it. 
and then he he answered the Hillary thing, um, which I totally bought his explanation on. Like to me, I was like, okay, I see what you were saying. Like that doesn't show good political instinct. Like you shouldn't, you, you should know better. <laughs> like you're in the middle of a campaign. Don't don't uh, support Hillary Clinton when you know she's toxic to most of the people who are who are in your party, who are on your side. Like you're, tr- I don't know. That whole campaign was such a joke. The other thing that I really I'm worried about with Weld is uh, he may use Ron Nielsen again. And uh, Ron's a nice guy. I've met him a couple times, and uh, I think he did an abysmal job running Gary Johnson's campaigns. I think the strategy on those two campaigns was not great. It was even worse in 2016. The messaging was not good. It was nowhere near what it was in 2012. Uh, they went to the craziest states and put the most effort into the craziest states, mm-hmm. and then they got totally cucked by that one Mormon guy, the CIA agent in Utah. Right. Uh, and the Libertarian Party candidates never go where the parties are strong. Like, nobody ever campaigns in Indiana to drive up your percentages and numbers. Like, if Gary Johnson and Bill Weld had spent a significant amount of time in Indiana, they could have gotten really decent numbers that might have helped get them into the camp. Get them into the debates, but they never do that. They go to like places like Oklahoma, where there is no political party, and try to build a new party. And it's just such a dumb strategy. The Aleppo thing was the fallout of that was handled poorly. And if I were Gary Johnson, I would have fired somebody immediately, just a sacrificial lamb, and been like, "My communications team is awful." Like that's what you, th- these two are too. Like Gary's too decent of a human being. Yeah, and I see what you're saying because yeah, uh, Indiana is one of the what is it lo- is one of the largest places for, of, of an LP, but uh, it, it is it is 13th in membership, but mm-hmm. it has high vote totals, and it's also a yeah a more pragmatic state. So if you're Gary Johnson, mm-hmm. you're going to want to come here and campaign. That's why Bill Weld put us on the list. We're fourth after the three largest populated states, mm-hmm. and then Indiana. Right. Versus, you know, Adam Kokesh didn't show up because he did, he went to those and then he didn't come to us because he's like doing the math, mm-hmm. which I think was a dumb strategy because he could have made a good impression on a lot of people who are very skeptical about him. Right. Uh, but, you know, he sent his guy and he was great. So, um, but yeah, I think Ron Nielsen ha- has had bad strategy and I hope he doesn't use him again. So yeah, because I see what you're saying. Because yeah, because like uh, Indiana has those huge totals, that, and there's huge people there. Just like um, there's huge uh, libertarian presence in New Hampshire. Is that but that party is growing in itself. It's not. Mm-hmm. It doesn't have a massive foothold like the LPIN does. Yep. Um. So yeah, yeah, it makes sense. Yeah. All right, kids. I think that's enough. There's a there's a lot to chew on there. Uh. So hopefully you feel a little bit, a bit better informed. Uh. There's I don't think I made your choices any easier. <laughs> um, so yeah, let's uh, let's also mention uh, going back to the beginning. Braun won the race, forty-one percent to the uh, Messer Rakita boys, splitting it twenty-nine to twenty-nine percent. Projected winner. Projected winner at this point, fifty-eight percent in. Uh, th- so that's crazy. I don't know. Don Lee's projected. I'm an outsider. I'm an outsider. Don Blankenship in West Virginia, the uh, China people guy got third place in west virginia so braun braun is no don blankenship he's uh mike braun is is if you're a republican in the state of indiana uh he'll probably be fine but uh if you're 
in West Virginia and a Republican, you're breathing easy. If you're a Democrat in either of these states, uh, I think if you're a Democrat in Indiana, you wanted Braun. If you're a Democrat in West Virginia, you really wanted uh, Blankenship. It's talking about China people. (laughs) (laughs) So, uh, and we've had CNN on in the background for three hours now, and there is a story breaking that uh, the lawyer for Stormy Daniels says that Michael Cohn got paid, the lawyer to Donald Trump got paid by a Russian oligarch half a million dollars days after the election ended. So that could be a big thing if that's true, but it's the lawyer from Stormy Daniels that's breaking the news on Anderson Cooper, and it's an election night, and they've run it wall to wall. It, I, I mean, have you looked up and, and not seen Russiagate on the That's, TV? It, that was, it, it was the entire thing the they entire were just talking about with Russia. For three hours. About possible the oligarch that gave money. I, I should have turned it on CBS like my intuition said I should, the CBS streaming thing, because then we would have gotten results, but instead we've gotten Russia, Russia, Russia. Oh, man. <sighs> All right. Uh, I said Nice is almost at two, almost at two, almost at 2,000. Nice. Where's yeah. he at uh, in terms of... Um, f- fifth, um, what, six, six. He's in six, sixth place with the Daryl Garivel vote, two point six percent of the vote. Nice, I know, right? Now I'll nice. pivot that and come back to the LP. All right, kids. Thanks so much for joining us on this episode. Final thoughts for you? Um, um, let's see. One, um, f- I will say this, Rick. Um, you got um, you guys made the convention that looked like something I did want to be. Okay, uh, I did want to look really looked that convention looked a lot a lot of fun. Of course, it was mostly from Christie's um, post. Watching looking at Christie's post through the convention made me want to be down there. Um, but I was up at, at Gunther's birthday party. As right. you guys know, it was Gunther's first birthday. Yeah, how Gun- was that? It was a lot of fun. I went, got to cook out um, uh-huh. for her first birthday and get her have grilled hot dogs and hamburgers and watch her eat that. Um, she didn't. She was. She, she didn't really smash cake. She wanted a Aww. fork. I wanted a fork, <laughs> just like her dad. Uh, yep. Just like, uptown oh, mess. Uptown clean. All right. Well spoken. Yep. So yeah, but you know, she had a ball. She had a blast. Um, got to see some family members. I got to also see um, my cousin's daughter, who I haven't seen since she was right before christened, and now she's like f- almost five and walking around, wow. moving away. Didn't even recognize her. That's cute. Yeah. So yeah. Um, kids are the best. They're so they're so much fun. Oh yeah. Oh, yeah. I, I wish I had had kids. It's not looking good, Harry. I'm 34. You can have kids up to your uh, 60, um, just like Trump. Um, the other thing is, um, you, you say that, but too, like my last night I spent up all night with Gunther just um, having nightmares. Right. Just screaming randomly Aww. all night. And then somehow she got her mattress up and got in between the mattress and the um, like the bassinet frame for uh-huh. some reason. I have no idea how she got in there, and that's and then when she figured out how to get in there, every time I kept putting her back on top, she kept going back in. Yeah, there it's a some... fun. It's a fun project. Yeah, yeah I... she's, she's just like you. She's just working on a fun project. Yeah, I see that. Yeah. So, um, um, let's see. We got a low key wall tomorrow. I'm going to do it. I don't have anything really in my way other than dear leader want me to do his breaks. 
Uh, yes, speaking of projects, I was just actually <laughs> opening the Discord now to see if you had actually replied. Uh, I was going to give you some... Uh, of course not. I haven't replied because I was going to uh, get you in person to ask you a couple of details about it because um, pricing structure changes depending on how much effort you want to put in personally. Oh, I'm doing it? Well, yeah, I could teach you how to do it. Uh, oh, yeah, that'd be fun. Or, because I was going to charge more if I was doing it myself versus if I was going to teach you, I was just going to charge less. You were going to charge me? Yeah, yeah, I was. I thought we were friends. We are friends. That's why I'm going to charge you. Well, what? no, friends don't charge. You don't know. Friends charge. Friends charge. Thanks, 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 Boss Hog. <laughs> <laughs> no, Boss Hog doesn't ever pay for anything. He invites his friends over for friendship. Right, yeah. And then he makes them go down in the crawl space and give them an estimate <laughs> on, on home repairs, show up to hang out for a pool party, and then you're cleaning gutters. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Otherwise, he feeds you to his gators. Yep. Um, right now, like I'm trying to get some. I'm trying to convince Lacey's mom to come and watch Gunther early, so I can come over to uh, so I can get those ribs started early. Because really, you wanted going from eight hours. If I can't go eight hours, I'm not doing ribs on Saturday. What is this about? Ribs. Ribs. Where are we doing ribs? Oh, at, at Jair's. Yeah. 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 Because, but if I can't smoke for eight hours, I'm not doing it. It's not even worth doing. If I can't smoke for eight hours, well, if you need to, if you need to uh, smoke. For eight hours, mm-hmm. then and you're in Newcastle. Yeah, then hit up Young Tanner. <laughs> Tanner, Tanner's your man. Yeah, people want to donate the brake pads. Reinhold, you can come join us. That <laughs> these are these are the back brakes though. We got drum brakes. Yeah, this rear brake. Uh, are they drums on that thing? Uh, I don't think so. I think they're just. When I looked wow. today, I was looking at them to see how grooved they were because mm-hmm. I didn't even realize I had a problem until I had Aaron and Hannah in the car, and they're like, "I hear grinding. I think you need to change your brakes." I'm like, "Oh." That's not good. And now I'm like, oh, it isn't stopping the way that it should. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. It just looks like pads and rotors. Okay. Because, so. like, um, it'd be easy. I figured we can uh, take your thing to the DIY garage, put your thing on the lift. Mm-hmm. You know, granted, it'll be, like, the easiest way to teach because it's it's on the lift, so you can easily see you know, how yeah. to use no, it. No, no, no. I'll, I'll let you teach me how to be a man. Yeah. Yeah, just, I just, I can, Ooh, we can get the power tools out, too. I know how to do this stuff. I just don't have any of the tools, and I'm living in an apartment. So. Uh, DIY Garage, um, you just pay for bay time, and they, they provide the tools. That's cool. Yeah. Where's that at? Um, it's up on uh, 42nd and um, Shadeland. Sounds sketchy. It looks sketchy, but you be with me, you'll be fine. <laughs> okay, as long as I've got you. Yeah, my you'll be with in, me. My you'll be insurance. Fine. Yeah, yeah, yeah. All right, cool. Well, we'll talk about this. I need to get them done pretty soon, but okay. uh, I got I got other estimates. But it looked like the the parts were a couple hundred bucks, so um, which is a lot. Uh, but anyways, Harry, any other thoughts? Um, no, no. Just uh, just if you're a huge fan of Loki Wall, make sure you guys turn in tomorrow because I'm gonna have a conversation about the future of Loki Wall going forward, and just some ideas. I'm gonna mix up the show a little bit. All right, cool. Uh, no further thoughts from me. I've said it all. I said a lot here. Uh, uh, really enjoying the podcast as of late. Um, I get a tons of great feedback from about you, Harry. They love this team of Harry and Spangle. Uh, that you're good at balancing. So thank you for being here. Thank you for uh, being a part of it, Harry. And thank you for being a part of it. I uh, Are you doing your bits dance? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I just, I, I'm enjoying prepping for this. It's been a ton of fun. And uh, there's no announcement coming. I'm just saying, I, I just am really enjoying this. And I hope that uh, 
over the last few months that you've seen an improvement in the show. Uh, I, I am putting way more time into it, way more prep. Uh, it's it's exhausting. I mean, I'm not going to lie. Uh, the amount of work that goes into making sure that, you know, I didn't have anything printed out. I had a couple things printed out in front of me, but that was probably 20 different resources that I kind of read about the Iran stuff to try and figure out. I've been, I've been trying to figure out the Iran deal for like a week and a half, two weeks now, uh, because I knew this was coming. So, but I'm loving it, and I want to thank you guys for listening to it, and I want to thank you for enjoying it, and I want to thank our Patreon subscribers for helping pay for it. Uh, you know, everything from news subscriptions to the hosting to the the podcast hosting to equipment. Uh, you guys are just you guys support us in so many great ways, and we thank you for it, and we really do appreciate it. Uh, my trips that I'm going on, I'm very excited about. Uh, the first unofficial wall trip is to Vegas this next weekend. Uh, so this weekend, my brother's getting married, so I leave Friday morning early to fly to Vegas, come back Monday. Um, I am probably doing a show Thursday, and uh, if if he doesn't flake on me, I've got a got a very special episode if he doesn't flake. Uh, and, and if he does, there's not going to be a show. There's not going to be a show. I I don't think that I will do shows next week. Uh, I, I just need a little bit of a break so I can like, sometimes I just need to just like relax and not read news and be in this zone. Like I'm in a zone. Mm -hmm. Uh, like, so I may not do shows next week just to kind of have a little breather. Um, so, but very exciting, uh, summer. Really enjoyed the convention and really looking forward to attending these next two events to kind of get a flavor. Uh, and you hopefully got some good stuff out of it, too, uh, attending it. So thanks for joining us, and then we will see you Thursday, hopefully. All right? We'll talk to you soon. Bye. Thank you for listening to this episode of We Are Libertarians. I'm amazed you made it to the very end, and I appreciate that. And that means that you were a true fan of We Are Libertarians, and any true fan of We Are Libertarians should listen to our other podcasts. We have a whole network of shows. We have The Chris Spangle Show, where I talk about many of my varied interests that aren't political, a lot of podcasting talk. If you're interested in getting involved in podcasting, The Brian Nichols Show. Brian talks to a lot of different folks from the left, the right, the center, libertarian movement. If you love We Are Libertarians, you will love The Brian Nichols Show. The Boss Hog of Liberty. The Boss Hog has basically created a media empire in his small town and has taken over along with his co-host D- Dakota Davis. I think it's really interesting to see how they've built a media network, and I encourage you to do the same. Upward Political Training, it's a podcast where I've put a lot of training for libertarians on how to spread the message. The Cost, this is a podcast where we break down the human costs of government policy, so be sure to check that out. Raw Audio Politics, where basically I take unedited speeches and interviews and stuff that I want to listen to, and I put it in a podcast feed for you. Miranda's World, Miranda is one of the craziest human beings in a good way that I've ever met. She's so entertaining and so much fun, and I think you will love that. And who could not listen to Tad Talk? Tad Western brings you the rootness, tootness, good time this side of the Mississippi. So be sure to check that out. He's one of the funniest human beings that I know. And if you are chubby and you need to get in shape, then you can't outrun the fork with Brett Bittner, where he talks about keto. Yes, I gave Brett Bittner a show. And you can check out a bunch of other podcasts at libertarianpodcasts.com. I have put together all of my favorite libertarian podcasts 
up there at libertarianpodcast.com, including our friends Lions of Liberty, The Lava Flow, The Johnny Rocket Launchpad, uh, The Scott Horton Show is one that I definitely think you should be listening to. So go check that out. Lots of great libertarian podcasts out there. You may not know where to start. Start there. And we've also got a comprehensive list of all the libertarian podcasts I can find. Thank you for listening. And if you love We Are Libertarians, please check out all of our shows at wearelibertarians.com. Thank you for listening to the We Are Libertarians Network. Get our other shows at wearelibertarians.com.